Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcripts can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up on a Friday? I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. It is Mailbag Friday. The People's Holiday has returned again. We also have Colin Brister on for a little baseball chat. And uh, so I just combined these two podcasts into one. I was going to put one out on Wednesday night, Thursday morning, but I just decided to uh, put it all out at once. So we'll get to Colin Brister first and then Mailbag Friday for an extra long podcast to uh, hopefully kickstart your weekend. So good stuff in the, uh, in the show today. Looking forward to it. Before we get to that, I want to remind you the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, Glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. These guys are destroying it. Just last night, as I read this, they went eight and three in college basketball and went and that comes on the heels of an absolutely monster weekend at the Daytona 500 they hit a 22 plus 2200 prop that uh, was good for a, a smooth 22 units there um, massive profits on the Daytona 500 this weekend if you listen to my Friday or our Friday show last week with Skybox uh, NASCAR guru Mark Harris um, you can kind of see you got a little insight into what makes Skybox go as far as NASCAR, one of the niches, niche sports, I would say that they are absolutely dominating. So you need to check these guys out. They're going to have a picks package to fit your price range. You can get the NASCAR package for free right now. That will be free till the end of the month. As uh, Mark outlined last week, the new car technology, he wanted to make sure he's putting on a good product and didn't feel comfortable putting behind a paywall, not necessarily knowing that his picks were going to cash. How about that? That's why Skybox is the best in the business, and they profited anyway. If you, use the, if you buy the NASCAR package uh, right now, you can use the promo code NASCAR for 30% off, and that'll get you the picks even when it goes behind the paywall. For every other purchase, you can use the promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E, for 20% off. March Madness is coming up. There's uh, it's kind of like the uh, spring gambling mecca. You're going to want to make sure you're using Skybox because they're going to lead you to profit more consistently than anyone else. Definitely your own dumb brain. So check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com, best in the business. Podcast also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Go see Greg uh, when he's not at the library. I got a, I got a photo of Greg and a couple of Jaeger bombs uh, last night. But uh, <laughs> go check him out, LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. If you're Rippy Wright subscriber, that is rippywrights.substack.com, you get – a newsletter for me three to five times a week, except this week because I was working on a big project we'll get to in a second, and discounted meats. That is, right now, right now, I can't talk today. Right now, it is a 16-ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. Just walk in there, go show Greg proof of subscription. He'll get you set up, and then go find your own favorites. Uh, all kinds of great cuts in there, fresh seafood, all kinds of delicious sausages, crab stuff. Mushrooms is a personal favorite. I like the filet burgers as well. You need to go find what you like in there because Greg is here to make your grilling experience great. It's ironic to say this as I sit in 30-degree weather in Dallas, but the weather is turning soon. It is getting close to grilling season. Make sure you go with the best, and that is LB's University Avenue, soon to be in the central Mississippi area out there in Glugstadt. Go. So go check them out. Again, Greg wants to make your grilling experience better. and all right, before we – we'll get to Colin Brister first before we get to uh, 
Mailbag Friday. But uh, real quick, just wanted to uh, reiterate, I think I mentioned this on the Monday show. I have a story up on rebelgrove.com, a long-form piece on Randall Joyner's wife, Tramisha Joyner, Ole Miss defensive line coach, Randall Joyner, and uh, their journey through Tramisha suffering a brain aneurysm during the middle of football season. Pretty remarkable stuff. She uh, she went into surgery on September 27th and then was back at a football game 26 days later, and uh, she was nice enough to share kind of their story, their battle and recovery, and what is still uh, kind of a daily fight to uh, kind of regain normalcy there. So that's up on rebelgrove.com if you want to uh, – want to go read it. Uh, I really enjoyed working on it. It was uh, pretty inspiring listen to both of them take the the challenge head on because they didn't know if she was going to survive. Um, like the way brain aneurysm work when you get to the like point of a rupture, that's when it becomes a pretty, pretty serious and deadly situation. And so, um, you know, their resolve and strength through it all, I uh, definitely drew inspiration from. So anyway, that's up. If you want to go read it, rebelgrowth.com. Um, long one kind of took me away from the newsletter for most of the week but uh, I think it's uh, certainly worth your time so well uh, we're going to get to some of that in the uh, mailbag questions uh, I think I saw a couple in there but uh, anyway just wanted to put that out there before we get to Colin Brister all right here's Colin on Ole Miss starting 4-0 and a little bit of VCU stuff there at the end and then uh yeah then we'll get out of here and do some mailbag questions here he is all right, we now welcome on Rippy Wright's baseball correspondent, Colin Brister. Actually, back-to-back podcasts. I have not published another podcast since we last did our uh, our first Sunday show of the year. Um, we're coming at you a couple hours after Ole Miss finishes a midweek game against Arkansas State. Spoiler alert: We decided I, we didn't just decide to do a podcast because Ole Miss has uh, got a fifteen to five win over the Red Wolves. We'll talk some weekend stuff and just kind of where this team's at after four games kind of do like a hybrid weekend preview what's up my man so you're you're, you're a jackson like resident right uh like when you, yes. you grew up in jackson yes and i assume you've been to mama hamels oh yeah great place god that place was so good anyways um it is very yeah. uh very cheap too right you just pay up front and it's like oh i can keep yeah. going back like this is it and all the like you know the buffets you kind of get terrible not terrible you get average yeah. quality food sometimes hell no that place is no, 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 country no. cooking yeah, that place. I got to go back there. Anyways, um, yeah, so 15-5 win today in miserable conditions. Uh, they got the game in somehow. Ole Miss will have win and, uh, by the by the result of the game, I guess. Um, it feels like Ole Miss always, like, wins this first game against Arkansas State. They never lose it. And then they go to Jonesboro and just have a miserable time in May. So, hopefully this year they don't, they don't have to endure that miserable time in May down there. That one in Jonesboro, too, is always, like – well, this could be a real, uh, a real uh, mouse trap for like their hosting chances, or if they're yeah. having a bad year to get in. That trip, right before week to Jonesboro, is never fun. It's kind of a crackerjack Mickey Mouse ballpark too. I don't know why Mike schedules that. I'm sure there's a reason for it, but that's always a landmine. There's never a scenario where you're like, okay, sweet, they get this opportunity. Well. Do you remember in uh, 19 when like they get they they all right? So in 19, the team is just freaking nuts. So they win the series in Baton Rouge. They come home and get swept by state. They go to Jonesboro after getting swept by state, and everyone's losing their mind about Bianco and blow like a three-run lead in the bottom of the ninth and lose to Arkansas State. Yes, I do remember that. It was Lord, uh, That was the low point, I would say, or close to it. <laughs> Lost to Arkansas State with your closure on the mound on a Tuesday. That was about as bad as it could get. Anyways, um. 
yeah, decent win today. It sounds like the match. I'll be honest, I did not watch a pitch of this game. I actually was not going to be able to watch a pitch of it. And then we are having an ice storm here in Dallas. I say ice storm in air quotations because – Man, if it gets below 35 degrees here and there's a chance of precipitation, people bunker down like we're about to get hit by a nuke. Like my boss was uh, like, all right, we're going to go work. Like you're good to go. We'll work from home. We're going to work from home tomorrow too, just in case. And then I'm sitting there making kind of uh, kind of making fun of the whole situation. I'm like, damn, these people in Texas, not that Mississippi's any different, don't know how to handle the ice. <laughs> and then I busted ass in the parking garage, like just completely slipped on some ice. So like maybe my boss is smarter than me. Yeah, maybe, maybe that was a little bit of karma. But anyway, I actually got to watch some of the uh, game while I was working. If anyone from Dar Pro Solutions is listening to this, I was actually not watching the game. This is just a lie to my listeners. But anyway, I got to watch some of it from uh, – I wouldn't say I was necessarily locked into it. But, I mean, I'm not sure there's a lot you could take away on the surface. There's – I thought – I didn't get – I watched part of the first inning. Most of it was while I was still driving home. But I thought Jack Washburn – was overthrowing a little bit. He missed up in the zone a lot, gave up a couple walks in the first inning. Shotney made an error of the defense to bump out. But then he comes back and has a quick one, two, three inning when I can't remember if he struck out the side or got two strikeouts, but really had a quick, nice rebound inning. And it was kind of up and down from there. I thought Washburn was a solid B and it was mostly good. I think what we're starting to see, and again, this is one start plus one inning, is them having not difficulty. He hasn't developed into that starter's mentality from a mental standpoint and how you approach pitching. And really, it becomes physical in some ways. Like, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe this. He has, on the scale of, like, Wes Burton to being completely devoid of emotion, he's more on the reliever Wes Burton scale. Cool. And I think they're trying to transition him to a starter to where you don't have to be so amped up and overthrow because you got six more of these if we can get it out of you, buddy. Yeah, he, uh, he goes zero to 100 real quick, right? Yes. Okay. Um, what did it look like Velo wise? He was a he was ninety ninety one, and I'm not sure what it is about his uh, his fastball, but that thing plays a, a tick or two quicker. It seems like. And now look, it's Arkansas State. I, I, we can say this again. I breaking news. I don't love their chances to make the field of sixty four this year, but he's one of those. Um, they, like Mike used to describe Brady Bramlett's fastball as heavy, high, high, like, high you know, spin rate. Yeah, basically, that was kind of like the pre-analytics term to where it really sneaks up on you. There, I think there's some element to that with Washburn. And then the breaking ball is super bendy. Like, it's, it's not nasty. just visually appealing to watch or visually appeasing. It is fun to watch him throw a bender in there. And so, I don't think my thoughts on his ability, and I still betting on him to be the third starter or be in the rotation, have changed. But there was some shakiness to it today. And I think a lot of it, as you just kind of hit on or about to hit on, is a little bit of the mentality of it to where you got to get him to where, hey, man, like the, the goal is not to get three outs. The goal is to collect about 20 of these. Yeah, yeah. And so that's where that's where the dynamic of Ole Miss is, uh, is pretty weird because John Gaddis is going to be a weekend starter unless all hell breaks loose. We're, we're in agreement there, right? Yeah. And, and But I don't really know what Friday and Sunday is going to look like. Um, I think I do. I think Diamond's going to be the Friday guy until he's not. Um, and then Drew McDaniel is going to have to pitch well to keep his Sunday job. But I, I just, I, you know, it's such a weird deal because I don't know how here's – the, here's the thing that fascinates me. If you're going to do the Diamond, uh, Gaddis, McDaniel thing, all right, well, how do you use Jack Washburn to get him ready for SEC play? Um, because are you going to use him as a bullpen guy? 
Are you going to use him as a midweek starter? Um, I know obviously they used him as a midweek starter today, but I'm, what I'm curious about is was that just to get some innings or were they trying to make him into a starter? They think he's going to be a reliever. Um, it's kind of interesting just to see how they're going to play this out um, because I think there's a role. See, I mean, I, I think this, if Derek Diamond and John Gaddis and Drew McDaniel do their jobs and are decent starters, well, I mean, I think Jack Washburn needs a bigger role than just the midweek starter. Um, so it's just going to be kind of interesting to see how they play it. I think you're, I, I think you're on to something there. I don't think he's their midweek starter. Um, no. I, like long-term. I, I think like, he, what we just outlined between the fastball and that will, really bendy breaking ball, he is more than good enough. And I think you probably knew this just from even what he did in the numbers he put at Oklahoma State. He's going to have a weekend role. I think when he gets into SEC play, if he hasn't cracked the weekend rotation and my wager is wrong, um, I, I don't think he'll continue to be the weekend guy. Um, I know this might make you throw up in your mouth a little bit, but, like, doesn't that scream – and, look, there's some newcomers, so two weeks this could look totally different. But in terms of what we know right now, if they get to SEC play and all things hold true and you're trying to find a role for Jack Washburn, doesn't the, the midweek feel like very Josh Mallettsy or something? Just a dude that's going to throw some strikes. And, look, I know he got yeah. him in trouble sometimes last year, but something like that. Like, it, Jack Washburn, I don't think, will be starting midweek games in late March, early April. Yeah, I think it. I think you know a guy like I know. I don't know what you mean, Josh Mallettsy. I think Hunter Elliott would be a really good candidate there. Um, but yeah, I, I don't like you said. It, I would be shocked if we're thir- the third weekend of SEC play and he is throwing against Arkansas Pine Bluff on a Tuesday. It just doesn't make a lot of sense, and I don't think you're getting the most value out of him doing that. Um, so we'll see. It, I can say this. If Jack Washburn is in the bullpen and is used in the bullpen when SEC rolls around, Ole Miss is really good on the mound. I, I do think that. I think Ole Miss, if he if he does not crack the rotation at some point, then Ole Miss is really good at, at starting pitching. Yeah, and like it, I guess in a way that saves you from having to break in the Bronco a little bit or break in the horse, right? They won't have to, I guess, change his mentality from that standpoint. That guy can get as jacked up as he wants to. He can snort some pre-workout and go out there and start like yelling at folks. I like they won't have to like tone him down if that's the case. And we've talked about like projecting best case scenarios with this team. Like I guess if you're talking best case scenario. You know, Diamond's good enough. McDaniel's good on Sunday. And then you just use Washburn as kind of another weapon to have in the bullpen. And I think – doesn't that really project as, like, the guy that gets you two and a third or three innings or something when you need it? Yeah. Yeah, I think if they had their druthers, they would – you know, the McDaniel and then uh, Diamond and Gaddis are good and they could keep him in the bullpen and let him pitch three high-leverage innings. But, um, you know, that, that produce or involves – at least two guys really, really producing and producing at a level that they have not produced at yet. Now, I'm not saying that McDaniel and Diamond can't, but uh, it's time to do it. So, we'll see. I think this weekend's going to be big. I think VCU can really, really fly. Um, I think they had a tough opening weekend, but I do think they're a pretty decent team. And we'll, we'll see. I, it's The Washburn dynamics probably the most interesting thing on this team because, like, at this point, there's not much you can say about the offense. It's, it's really good. It's going to destroy bad midweek pitching. Like, it, it's going to make some of these games against, like, Arkansas State, Memphis, and, 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 you know, Murray State, or if they even play them, those types of teams, it's going to make these games unwatchable because Ole Miss is just going to light them on fire. Yes, they are. Washburn walked four dudes today. And not great. 
No, it's not great, but that's also not necessarily the book on him. I think last year at Oregon State, he pitched 34 and two-thirds innings, and he walked 21 dudes, which is not some killer ratio, but it's interesting. I was going through his game log right before the season started last year, and he would have like – like last year he had a stretch where he had seven outings where four of them he went three innings and one and five of them he went over an inning and two-thirds. And he, six of those seven – he did not walk anyone, and he had one walk at, like, Grand Canyon or something. And then he would have two outings in a row where he'd walk, like, three dudes. And then he would go three more outings with zero. And so, it like, hmm. came in spurts. But, like, overall, based on what we know about him, I don't think the four walks today is necessarily the book. I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle of that six, seven-game stretch in that. I don't think I'll necessarily have a problem throwing strikes. He only had 37 today and 62 total pitches. Obviously, you'd like to see that ratio – get a little higher but um I think a lot of part of that too is like I don't know if you saw the weather today it was not optimal pitching scenario it was 39 degrees there was some wind and then it started raining a little bit and he wasn't on the longest leash in the world I think he could have probably worked his way out of the back-to-back walks in the game uh to uh start the fourth inning if they really wanted him to but Mike's got to get some guys in there so um, nothing necessarily changed about what I think at Washburn today you can kind of see what he can be and I'm just kind of I would like to see more, I guess, is kind of where we stand, which yeah. is probably the thing with a lot of guys. I just kind of want to see it one more time. I'd like to see it on a weekend in, like, two, three innings of relief, honestly. You think Mike's kind of frustrated that he's lost, what, like eight innings of baseball to, to run rules and the weather in the, in the four games? It's a great question. I was about to bring that up. I'm glad you asked it. I was uh, – so, as we were recording this, I did a hit with uh, Chase. Jesus, that sounds like I smoked crack with him. I hopped on his podcast. <laughs> And we were talking about – he was at the game today, obviously, and um, we were talking about that, right? Because they've played four games and one of them has gone nine innings. That is clearly not the plan. So, at this point, I'm not a mathematician, but 36 innings would be what you would have played, and they have played how many? They 29. Won. 29. Yeah, that, that doesn't seem optimal. So, yes, and it was interesting – so I wish they would post the uh, baseball interviews on video, mostly because I'd like to see Mike's grumpy ass a little more often. But like Chase, I had to go off what kind of what Chase hey, is. Are, are they still doing Zoom videos, or we we uh, we're going down on the field now? No, they're fully in person, which is a huge plus. Except on days okay. like this, where there'd be yeah. days Mike was in a bad mood. So when Mike was in like a good mood, we would do the media availability next to the heaters in the dugout. And when he was in a crappy mood, and it was terrible weather. That sucker was dead in the middle of right field, son. Just <laughs> weather be damned. But <laughs> I always hated that. Anyway, um, but, yeah, I, so Chase asked him about that on Sunday, about kind of the 10-run rule. And, like, I mean, he, clearly he wasn't going to be, like, throw Mark McMillan under the bus or anything or give any credence to the dynamics. But Chase made it sound like he was maybe a little bit apprehens- apprehensive or prickly about losing the innings. And then today he didn't seem to care very much. And maybe that's because he was freezing his ass off. I don't really know. He's got that very warm coat that I complimented one time that he got very upset about. Did um, he really? No, I wouldn't say upset. He got. He was very perplexed. I just walked up and he had one of those big, like, soccer jackets yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, And I was like, that's a nice coat. And he just, like, stared at me for, like, ten seconds and goes, thanks. <laughs> So, anyway, when, um, when you're talking to Mike Bianco about anything but other than baseball, I think any response to anything you say is on the table. Like literally anything is on the table from him. 
I've told this story before. I'm sure I, ha- I I'm sure I have. I bet Chase has too. We were standing there bored as hell one day in May, and we were waiting on someone or something. And it was you know the 1900th media availability of the year. And we were talking. Someone mentioned baseball movies, and Ben looked at Mike and goes, "What's your favorite baseball movie?" And he just goes, "Why?" <laughs> I don't know, Mike, because we're all standing here sweating our balls off, and we've talked to you twice this week, and really don't have anything to talk about. Like the interview hadn't even started yet. We were literally just chatting amongst ourselves, and everyone was like, "Sandlot," blah blah blah. And then it got to Mike, and he was just like, "Why?" Like, so I could do a whole other. I honestly, one day I'm just going to do a podcast. Maybe I'll drink like a fifth of liquor. And just talk about Mike Bianco for an hour and a half and get that out there. But well, what was it with the uh, with with the story about uh, yeah? But the guy in Pontotoc doesn't know I said that or something. Oh, that was one yeah, of the, the that was a stringer incident with Chase. I think he was stringing for a newspaper and he was upset. Mike was upset that uh, Chase had written they lost five in a row or something, and they had lost five in a row. It was not fake news, and I think he was upset because. Uh, your average dude in Water Valley might not be checking the box scores often enough to know they've lost five in a row. That was early. He's mellowed some. Anyway, though, today I think Chase kind of brought it up again, and he didn't seem as apprehensive like or concerned about it. But I think in the back of his mind, he has to be a little bit concerned if he was being completely truthful because, you know, we talked about the returnees that maybe whose stock are not as high from the – bullpen standpoint the Wes Burton's the Jackson Kimbrell's of the world they haven't pitched and neither is Brandon Johnson and you know he gave Cole Baker an inning today if he really wanted to get Brandon Johnson in the game obviously he could have just given the ball to Brandon Johnson instead of Cole Baker I I think if the game was yesterday if the game was yesterday I think Brandon Johnson gets into the game yeah I I just don't think they wanted to wait uh, you know with it being Wednesday and two days before the weekend. I, I just don't think they wanted to burn those bullets. Um, there's also yeah, a chance but, if it goes not like there's a pretty good chance if it goes nine today, he gets in and gets some work. That's true too. Um, so I don't know. It's it's there's allowed to be a situation this weekend where Mike doesn't agree to ten run rules and they just put like nineteen on VCU's head. Yes, that's by God, by God he's got to get his innings in. And, you know, I guess that's a decent enough transition. We could talk about, like, I'm going to, like, punch myself in the face for using the sports cliche measuring stick. But VCU was a two or three seed in Mississippi State's regional last year. They return, I would say, enough. I think they have two weekend starters back and a decent bit of production in the middle of their order. And by all accounts, I think in D1 baseball, there was kind of a split vote between them and I think it was, like, Fordham and maybe Dayton were kind of the three teams that got votes to win the league. So my point being is like, there's enough back to where they're not going to be, you know, Charleston Southern. And I hate to call it a measuring stick, but I guess I would say I would bet two of these three at least go nine innings. Do you feel comfortable with that? Yeah, I'll go there for sure. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, B- VCU is going to make Ole Miss play. Um, whereas Charleston Southern didn't make Ole Miss play. I mean, Ole Miss made four errors on Friday and, at no point did Charleston Southern even think about making it that competitive, much less winning the game. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, they, they Ole Miss will have to play well uh, if they don't want to have competitive games against VCU. If they don't play well, they're going to find themselves in seventh and eighth innings in a close game. And, and at some point, though, this team does need to play close games because they're going to go to the words out of my mouth. That's a great point. Like, I was about to go full hot take. Do you think they should have a game where they don't play well and end up in a 3-2 game in the seventh? I Look – 
clearly you want to go out and play well. They they might need some of that. Speaking of, yes, I absolutely agree with with you there. Speaking of UCF, did you see that they ruled our our boy John Rice ineligible? Yeah, it's actually funny you mentioned that my my girlfriend texted me while uh, right before I started recording with Jay, uh, with Chase. I'm assuming her dad texted her because uh shocker, she's not locked into Ole Miss baseball. I'm actually not positive she knows it's baseball season, but she texted me and said, "Why can't Plumley play baseball?" I was like, "Oh, I'll bite here. Like, what, what's the deal with this?" But I explained the waiver process and how it doesn't make any sense. And I used the example. Do you remember the in the peak of like the waiver outrage? You had that kid that transferred from, like, Virginia Tech to Richmond because his mom yes. had, like, a brain tumor and got his waiver denied. But then JT Daniels was immediately eligible or some comparison like that. It was, like, they're making sense. I tried explaining that to her, and she was like, that's total bullshit. How are they allowed to do that? And I was like, oh, how much time do you have? <laughs> like, so, so, so this kid is a great teammate and goes and plays for Ole Miss. Well, I think we both would agree that he knew he was transferring the night they played the Sugar Bowl. Um, yes, I think well before that as well. Yeah, he goes. He's a great teammate. Does what he's supposed to do, and because of that, we're not going to let this kid play baseball on a team that he would probably start on. <sighs> God, the NCAA is insufferable. And like it's 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 like it's. I was about to say it's not it's surprising, but not it's really just not surprising, right? Because now they they you know. If I'm in the NCAA office, they probably hate the one-time transfer. And so when you have one of these situations where Plumlee technically transferred this semester and, you know, baseball season is six weeks away, they're probably just trying to, like, stick it to, like, the fringe kids to where there's still yeah. a question. Let me, which let me doesn't stick make it, it any more kid. right, but I was not surprised by this decision. Yeah. Let me stick it to the kid that does a ton of philanthropic work and, uh, and, you know, is a really good kid and does everything right. Yeah, yeah, let's let's I, stick it to that kid. Way to go, NCAA. Yeah, I'm the Ole Miss, the, the season is bummed. I can tell you that much. Philanthropic. There we go. I, I couldn't spit that word out. I'm not good with big words. But the, but like I guess I kind of back to the pitching a little bit. They're, sure. they're going to need to get some dudes' opportunities and, like, more of a guy's opportunities. Yeah. So, like, I think, you know, three nine-inning games wouldn't be the worst thing in the world for Ole Miss. And, look, I think, spoiler alert, you're going to see Brandon Johnson this weekend, which I'm actually intrigued to see what role he comes in. Um, and now I think a lot of that will depend on whether they actually have a safe scenario or you just kind of got to get him in. Let's go to the kind of the lower stock guys we were talking about on uh, Sunday's podcast. Surely you see Kimbrell and Burton this weekend, don't you think? Or do you think Mike goes kind of uh, chapter two a little bit on the Hunter Elliott's and the uh, Riley Maddox's of the world? That's going to be fascinating because, you know, I don't know if he can get – all of them innings again. Here's here's the thing I'll say. If Jackson Kimbrell and Wes Burton and Josh Mallett do not pitch this weekend, I do not expect to see them in a meaningful role um, going forward unless it just becomes blatantly obvious that the guys that he's calling on at that point can't get it done. Um, either they pitch this weekend or I, I just – I think he's he's turned the page on them. I think you just described that perfectly to where it's, 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 this is the status, this is the pecking order, unless the guys that are above them end up not being able to get it done, which, look, we've seen, right? I mean, there's yeah. a long season. I mean, at the same time, April's not a long way away, but from a game standpoint, that's a lot of innings away right. in May and all of that. And so I, I think you described that perfectly. And that's actually what I'm, one of the things I'm fascinated by this weekend. 
do you get those guys an opportunity? Was them not pitching, I won't say strictly, but mostly a product of the fact that you couldn't get three nine-inning games? Or is this kind of the pecking order? And I don't want to say Mike sending a message, but kind of giving us a little insight into what's going on in his head and what he thinks. And, um, you know, Chase is the one guy out of the three of us that talk baseball on this Rubble Grove podcast network a decent bit. That sounded like I was throwing shade at Neil. I just meant that's like kind of around it. Chase is actually there every day. Um, and one of the, we talked about this a second ago, and one of the things he mentioned was what stands out is, is that Mike doesn't really mention those guys a lot. And I oh. think that says more than – like the silence and them not being mentioned says more than – almost more than them not going in the game on opening weekend, you know? Yeah. Here's my thing, too, and, and, and this isn't necessarily the case with Kimbrell. Um, but Burton was really good at times last year. He threw really well against Arkansas in the SEC tournament, threw pretty well against Arkansas in the uh, regular season. And if you remember, he threw pretty well against uh, LSU on a Friday night um, when Doug Doug started the game and went five innings and Burton came in and threw pretty well. And he didn't get, he, he didn't get opportunities even after he threw well. Um, when you – Combine that with him not pitching on opening weekend, it just that that kind of signifies me to me where Mike kind of has him in the pecking order. Well, why did Josh Mallett? I, I hope I'm wrong, but you know, no, I think you're dead right. Why did Josh Mallett go in in Starkville last year? He threw strikes. You know who has trouble throwing strikes? Yeah, Burton at times. Exactly, and so like. I guess if Mike – it sounds weird to say Mike favors dudes that throw strikes, but it seems like he kind of feels more comfortable with guys even if, you know, the stuff's flat and they're throwing it over the middle of the plate a lot. I mean, how many times last year did a midweek game open double-double-double because Josh Mallett threw three um, fastballs over the middle of the plate? But well, damn, I mean, it, they, damn it, they were strikes. And so Mike's a little comfortable with dudes. You're, you're right. But think about who their think about who their top three relievers were last year, or top four relievers were at times last year. Um, Brandon Johnson, or excuse me, excuse me. Let's exclude Brandon Johnson because he didn't become a top line arm until the end. But their top four relievers were Taylor Broadway. He threw strikes. Jack Doherty, He he threw strikes. Austin Miller. He threw strikes. And Tyler Myers. He threw strikes. Like some of those guys weren't good at times. Uh, Josh Mallett, he threw strikes. Some of those guys weren't good at times, but by God, like you were saying, the ball was over the plate in between the knees and the belt. I think that tells you all you need to know, right? And that was a little bit of Kimbrell's issue, too. And when you talk about kind of these, I can't believe we're, like, I guess I'm dubbing them the low stock guys, but like Kimbrell could help them. I mean, they, they don't have an abundance of left handed pinching. Um, I think Mike made a comment a couple weeks ago about you know, them not having enough of it. And I was like, well, where were these comments last year? Because last year it was the same thing minus Hunter Elliott. Like, you didn't have much left-handed pitching last year. And so it's interesting to me because if Jackson Kirbel is even just okay, that's a dude that can help them a lot strictly yeah. because of what hand he throws with. Yeah. And that's what's interesting to me this week. That's the most interesting thing to me. Does, does Ellis – or not Ellis. Um, does Kimbrell, does Burton, does Mallets, do they get any? Um, because I think if they don't, and I don't know if they will or won't, but I think if they don't, that, that's probably a really, really clear sign of, of where they're at at the uh, Mike Blinko's pecking order. Yep, and it's uh, – I'd like to see a little – and, like, on the flip side of that, I'm kind of actually a little eager to see, uh, 
like uh, Riley Maddox again. Like, can I see what yeah. that looks like again? You know what I mean? And like the, I mean, Hunter Elliott, I wasn't, he was good, but I wouldn't say I was kind of like eye-poppingly impressed by him. I'd like to see another bit of that too. So I get to, from like a content standpoint, it's kind of fascinating because I'd actually kind of like to see these dudes we haven't seen very much of. Riley Maddox kind of being the poster shot of that because, you know, he hit 95 a couple of times and whatever that breaking ball was that they kind of converted I think it was more of a curveball in high school from the doing some, uh, I would say, talking to a couple people in the uh, MAIS community that they kind of converted a little bit into a slider. And, I mean, that shit will play against anyone. That's what we talked about on Sunday, right? Like, it's Charleston Southern, but 95 with an 82 bender is uh, – that'll, that'll get anybody out. And 17 and, yeah. 19, uh, 17 and 19 pitches being strikes will play too. I want to see more of that. Yeah. No, Riley Maddox is going to be really good. I'm, I'm interested to see how he gets used because um, he uh, he's a, he's going to be really good when you when you talk about a guy with with the fastball into the mid 90s and the movement. Yeah, he uh, I'm interested to see how they use him this week. You talk about roles for Brandon Johnson. I'm interested to see what kind of role he picks up. Ty, um, kind of judging uh, shifting back to the offense a little bit. Kevin Graham. Um, I'm not sure yeah. how often this has happened in the history of baseball. I believe he had seven RBIs in a five-inning game. <laughs> That's impressive. I think he'll, he's going to be okay, right? He, he had the four-strikeout game and had a little bit of a slow start, was pretty good on Sunday. I, uh, I think he's going to be fine. Thoughts? No, Kevin, <laughs> Kevin Graham will be good at baseball when May rolls around. Breaking news. Uh, no, I mean he he was really good again today. I saw he hit a home run. Leatherwood hit another home run. So uh, that's uh that yeah. was really the only offensive topic I'd like to get into from today from like a serious standpoint. And he didn't start. He that was a pinch right. hit Alderman. So now he has one start and two home runs on the year. What do you think it is with Mike? Because we talked about this before. We were on this even last year as it was happening, where we would get the left-handed pitching excuse, but you know, because he might gave him so few opportunities, did it, I can't remember, did it not shake out that he was actually better against, he technically was better from an average standpoint against um, the righties. Right? No, no. I, it, so at first, yeah, and then he kind of fell off. He, he actually finished about 222 against lefties, but here, here's what I'll say. He had four home run against left-handed pitching, so the OPS was about 880. Okay. Um, but no, he handles lefties fine, um, which was what was infuriating to me. I mean, he's a guy that's going to run the ball out of the ballpark, and and you kind of just don't let him play against one one-handed pitching. Um, so I don't know. That's uh, man, I I kind of just struggle to think that you know your best offensive lineup doesn't involve Hayden Leatherwood, but you know Mike Bianco's forgotten more baseball than I'll ever know, and and this team's scoring a ton of runs, so. I'm uh, going to continue to trust him until it's, you know, you give a reason not to. But, man, it just – watching him play, it's kind of hard to believe that that he is not uh, part of your best nine. I, yeah, I th- I just don't get that. And, like, the – the I get it, right? Mike – like, Mike sees a lot more of this than we do. And – but, again, like, for just from – I guess from, like, the visible and, like, the side that we see, I just – I don't understand that part of it. And it's interesting because it was almost – I don't want to say more egregious last year. It was almost puzzling last year to where there's a version of this that plays out this year where it actually makes a little bit more sense if, like, Alderman's a freak and Burford kind of locks down the third base thing. There's just simply not enough spots, right? They're 10-11 deep, and he's the odd man out. But yeah. I just have to think at some point, like, 
What do you do? I'll, I'll pose it in this scenario. What do you do if Reagan Burford is a solid B hitter at the plate? Do you still put him at third and find the value with Justin Bench at center? Or do you do the Justin Bench thing at third, Alderman at DH, or Leatherwood and right? Like, there's a number of ways you could do it. I yeah. guess what I'm saying is Burford for Leatherwood in a non-direct way, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it kind of feels like that's what it's down to, right? I think so um, as well. I think you're right. Where Ben Van Cleve's the weird wild card in this. But, yes, I think it's essentially that. Yeah. Um you know, and, and if I'm having to guess who maybe wins that, it's, it's probably the guy that's seen a lot more D1 pitching. Um, so, I don't know. We'll see. Um, we kind of did this song and dance with Leatherwood last year with John Rice Plumley, and, and Plumley, to his credit, was pretty good at times last year. So, um, at least it made sense. But, you know, we'll, we'll see with Burford and Leatherwood. But, man, Leatherwood's been really, really good earlier in the year. And, and if that continues, it's just going to be really, really hard to keep him keep him off the uh, – Field. Do you know why I love college sports, by the way? Why is that? Here's why I love college sports. LSU is 4-7 and seven in its last 11 and lost to a horrible Ole Miss – or on that night, that was a bad Ole Miss team when Ruffin got hurt. And they are up 10 at halftime – or going into halftime at Rupp. That is why I love college sports because that makes absolutely zero sense. Yeah, and they were, like, kind of getting healthy when they were playing Ole Miss. Like, that was one of the first games they had their dudes back. That's a weird team. They're, uh, they're like, super athletic, but none of them are, like, overly scary offensively of that, like, in a strange Did they get Pinson back? Yes, they did. And Pinson played against Ole Miss that night, which made that game even weirder. To be honest, Ole Miss just torched him for about nine minutes in that first half and held on for dear life. I mean, what's that? That, that, that offense at the end was so bad. Oh, they went nine minutes without a field goal and won the game. They they went the final nine minutes until that uh, until the uh, break field or whoever. Todd Fagan hit a runner or something, yeah. Yeah, they got the breakaway with like a minute left or whatever, or thirty five seconds left to kind of seal it. They went nine minutes without a field goal. That's a that defies. I mean, you could you have church league games that shit doesn't happen in. Like it's it. Nine minutes. What an what an unbelievable basketball team! There's no way the worst. Time. We're recording this on a Wednesday night. I have not watched a second of that. I do have it recorded in case I just hate myself. But they they're losing. I'm assuming, correct? Uh, you want to know the score? Oh, it's a three point game. Bro. It's a three point game in the second half. What the hell, Albert? <laughs> This is about to make it on TV, uh, TV number one. Yeah, I'm about to turn a TV on. I was about to say in the, uh, in the, uh, yeah, this is going on the first TV in the, uh, in the old room now. Um, to spin the, the, I think the Leatherwood Burford kind of how this lineup shakes out thing is actually interesting from the standpoint of if you want to spin it into a positive, it's a hell of a problem to have because last year we talked about this being a potent offense, right, and like fully healthy you know, with the, uh, if they could figure out the bullpen, because you felt pretty good about the starting rotation, like where are the flaws of this team? And then in the sense of a college baseball lens, life happened, right? You had a shot and yay injury that shuffled things around and ended up being a good thing because you discovered TJ McCants uh, kind of indirectly through that. And then you had a couple of pitching injuries and the bullpen couldn't get dudes out. And point being is they weren't like this bulletproof force last year through and through. Certainly not. And that even extended down to offense. And I think the difference between this year's offense and if you were trying to convince someone why it's better, you're not having to do the whole 
Kale Baker, uh, Trey LaFleur, Ben Van Cleef thing, DH first base, that's your eight, nine-hole hitter, whichever one it is, and you just live with the guy striking out a bunch, and, hey, if he gets you a hit or gets you a big hit or hits the ball over the fence, then, boom, you got a bonus. There's not that in the lineup this year. They're legitimately 11 deep, and one through nine, they're kind of a – I don't want to say kind of a handful. They're a nightmare. Kevin Graham hit that second home run today, and I don't know if you saw – someone posted this clip to Twitter. The Arkansas State pitcher just, like, put his head back in his hands and looked like he would be rather be anywhere than dealing with what he was dealing with in the moment. <laughs> like, when we talk about there being no weaknesses, there's, like, so far, there's really no hole. Like, there is no Kale Baker, Trey, like, Trey LaFleur revolving door um, in this lineup, which is really kind of remarkable because that lineup last year was still damn good. So – have I told you like like I want to I want to put that in context of, of of how good this lineup is? Have I told you who I would lead off if I had the sharpie? Elko. Yes, and for no other reason besides screw you. Like yeah, I got you eight other. To do it. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like I got eight other cats that'll come at you. Um, <laughs> you know, so I, I, this it's the best lineup in college baseball. And I don't really think it's particularly close when you look around the league and how teams are kind of swinging it right now. I mean, Florida. Uh, Florida's a lineup with a ton of draft picks that scored three runs on North Florida tonight and, and lost two out of three to Liberty. Um, and I think that's who you probably – well, outside of Arkansas, that's who you'd probably talk about being next to Ole Miss. It's just a – it's a nightmare of a lineup, man. It is. It's one through nine, and, and you got some cats on the bench that would play at a lot of other schools. Um, it's amazing to me, and, and I don't want to talk about this – too much because because I hope he stays Ole Miss forever. Um, but it's amazing to me that Mike Clement's been here eight years and, and nobody's made him a head coach in an SEC or a Power Five school because uh, what that cat's been able to do at Ole Miss has been pretty freaking impressive. The closest we got to that was him almost going to A and M two years ago as an assistant, was it not? Like, there's no head coaching buzz. It's actually um, that up. He, he got mentioned for the Kansas State job. I don't know how serious that was because he was previously at Kansas State. Um, other than that, not really. No, not that I've heard or, or, or has been reported or anything. But I'll tell you this: if if I was a Power Five school, you know, and I'm not talking about Texas or, or anything like that, but if I was you know, a school like maybe Alabama, and I'm not saying Bohannon's getting fired or anything, but if, if, I, if something like that, he he is going to be top of my list. He is an excellent, excellent hitting coach, and, and the way they've recruited talent and, and developed it is is pretty freaking impressive. The game you just played with, let's hit Elko just because I can afford you, and it's an fu move. Let's let's play that even further. This is their sat. This was their Saturday lineup against Charleston Southern. If you batted Kevin Graham in the leadoff spot, would you consider that a little bit of an FU move like Elko? Um, so it's funny you mentioned that. I would actually like optimally probably actually lead him off. Um, because I, I think he's he's maybe your best pure hitter on the team. How about Jacob Gonzalez? That seems like a big good more. Yeah, like that's that's a squeaky move. Um, how about TJ McCants? <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Like does that count, too? Like, yeah, absolutely. There's five dudes that you could say no, that they got no, no, that no. same argument you want, the, you want the biggest F you move? Leave what? Kemp Alderman off. Do it. Yeah. And then, I mean, and so, Leave like, whatever Kemp game off. you play with that, like, even if that was something that Mike Bianco wanted to torment with, 
you're ending up with the like this the six through nine that we didn't mention in that hypothetical is Dunhurst based off this Saturday lineup, Dunhurst, <laughs> Leatherwood, and your actual leadoff hitter in Chatagnier. <laughs> And all those dudes can mash, too, by the way. Yeah, I mean, that's just kind of silly to think about. And, look, if you want to poke holes in this thing, and, look, because anyone can do that, right? It's, like, to some degree. Like, uh, we'll just go through it. Dunhurst slumped a little bit at times last year. But, again, that was his first full season of college baseball. But it did happen. Yeah, it did, um, but I, I will say this on him. There's a reason I feel like he slumped. He had to catch every game for about three months. And, I mean, every game. Didn't he have a thumb issue, too? Yeah, he had a thumb issue, and, and his two backups were hurt, and Knox LaFoster and Calvin Harris. So, he had to catch every midweek game on that deal. That's a great point. And then, like, I, I, the only other thing I could come up with if you're kind of trying to poke holes in this armor is that this uh, – is that the um, – I just went blank. That the Alderman thing doesn't work out from a velocity right. standpoint. He still can't get sure. to – like, that struggles. But <laughs> – <laughs> you just play Hayden Leatherwood, don't you? Yeah, I mean, go get the go get the senior that hit seven home runs and play him. So yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, look, I mean we're, be, we're so, beating a dead horse, but it really is kind of a marvel. And I'm curious to see if this kind of lives up to its full ceiling and its full potential. And you know, hopefully, just from an entertainment sake, they stay completely healthy because there's a world where they just kind of terrorize the SEC. Because Chase well, mentioned this, it's going to bode well for them on Sundays, right? In a league that's yeah. not particularly as deep as we're accustomed to with starting pitching. But it even goes beyond that. If you catch a middling SEC West team that's maybe pretty good on the mound, one through three, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but only has two bullpen arms, like a la Ole Miss last year, when you hit that third bullpen arm on Saturday, they're going to blow the sucker wide open. That's, that's yeah. And so here's my thing, too. And, and this is, and, and unfortunately, at this point in Ole Miss baseball, this is where the conversation always heads to. This team needs to be really, really good in the regular season, and I think they will be. And that way, you're the third national seed. And everybody's going to yell, Tennessee Tech. Okay, I get it. It happened. But, you know, you would much rather be the third national seed than the 13th national seed. And I would love for this team to be the third national seed, get out of a regional and get to host like a East Carolina or a, a Dallas Baptist or a back-end host because I don't think that the teams that are going to finish 14, 15, and 16 are going to have the depth of the pitching staff to come to Oxford and shut on this down. So it, it, what I guess I'm saying is there is a realistic way that, you know, for all the super regional talk, if Ole Miss can do what they're supposed to do offensively in the regular season. Um, and we've seen glimpses of it so far. And then, look, it's a long season, and they've got to continue to do it, that they can just flat-out out-talent their way uh, to that place in Nebraska. So um, that, that's kind of what this offense is giving you the chance to do. Frankly, it's an offense that, that mirrors what Arizona looked like last year, um, which just terrorizes – and not even bad pitching. They terrorized pretty decent arms for Ole Miss last year. Decent? Um, did you see what Doug did after three innings? See, this is where we're about to start hitting me midseason yeah. form because you just you that was the thought I was going to kind of throw back at you was like, remember in nineteen when they got a pretty good regional draw because that Illinois team wasn't very good. I mean, hell, Illinois' yeah. ace was a dude that threw like eighty four and he threw it like a floppy disk, and then like a right. like a very average Clemson team and Ole Miss just bludgeoned their way through that regional. Right. 
this team, to me, as you mentioned, it's important that they kind of get one of those national seeds in, like, top three where you get a back-end host. Like, if I'm picturing in my mind how they get to Omaha, they bludgeon their way through the Super, too, right? Where it's just kind of never in doubt because they're so overwhelming offensively, which, like, to finish your thought, that's what Arizona did to Ole Miss. Doug Nikhazy struggled to get through five and whatever he got last year. And that was arguably the hottest pitcher in the country at the end of the year. But that offense was so relentless that Ole Miss never really stood a shot, if we're being honest. No, I knew it was it was fun watching Doug, like, pitch his tail off and compete. And then if you remember Austin Miller coming in. And then about the eighth inning when it was obvious, hey, Ole Miss is going to win and force this to game three. My mind went to, how the hell are they getting 27 outs tomorrow? Because I'm like, Broadway's got about seven or eight. And I don't know where the hell the 19th, the other 19 are coming from. Um, and, and unfortunately for Ole Miss, they did not come. And so I guess probably, they came, but not easily. And you remember Broadway starts the game, which we suggested, I believe, before that happened, not taking credit for it or anything. Not that I have a problem taking credit for things I didn't actually do. But <laughs> on a serious note, that was one of the more forward-thinking Mike Bianco, Mike Bianco yeah. pitching moves of – you know, kind of his tenure. And I think that's kind of his, if you want to give him credit for evolving, we, I, I think it was you that threw that out there. I don't think I did it. I'm pretty sure it was you. And then he actually went with Broadway. And I guess that speaks to how great the Arizona lineup is because that, that shit did not matter. Yeah. Broadway was really good coming into that game. And I thought he threw pretty well that night and they just hit tanks. And I'm like, I, you know, it is what it is, man. And that's the thing, right? Like, and this is what I think would frustrate Ole Miss fans if, if they don't do what they're supposed to and they finish in the number 11 seed and they have to go to Starkville or Fayetteville or wherever the hell they have to go. Um, it's like, well, yes, you played a better team. You lost a better team or if that was to happen. But this team's good enough to be a top five national seed. Don't have to go play at, a, at the number six seed. Be the top five national seed and get to host Oklahoma State or East Carolina or whoever it is. And that way – and it's going to be hard. And I look, I get it. Oh five, oh six, oh nine. I was there. Um, it's going to be really hard for someone to come in and shut down this offense enough to win two games in Swayze Field uh, in June to me. So if Ole Miss can continue, look, it's got, it's got the offense to do it. If they can continue this, they've got a real shot at doing what they want to do. But th- this, to me, like, I guess what I'm trying to say is. It's it's obvious at this point this team is too talented to have to find itself on the road in the Super Regional this year. Yeah, and if you're talking about just like brute force busting down the door, like the margin – if you're a team built like around starting pitching in a pretty good bullpen, like in a Super Regional game to where say you lose game one, then kind of your Doug Nikhazy on Saturday just has a bad day, all of a sudden your season's done to where, you know, offensively, if you're that stacked, you got to get through nine guys for 18 innings or – you know, I guess yeah. victorious innings, that is. That well, seems I mean, a lot harder to do. That seems a lot more sturdy with more margin for error as well. Right. I mean, this team was not as good offensively last year. Still pretty freaking good. But they were down 11-1 to one and, like, 9-1 to one to LSU and Arkansas. And at some point in that game, it was tied. Now, they didn't win the Arkansas game. They did win the LSU one. I mean, this offense can make up for a lot of mistakes on the mound. And Before, uh, it's fun to watch. It really is, and, and unless it's a midweek game, because some of those things are going to go four hours. They're going to be unwatchable. I'm glad I don't have to cover it. Right, before I, before we hit a couple of random topics that I had written down, I'll let you get out of here. La Tech up 9-4 to four on LSU. Does that do anything for you? Uh, yeah, it makes me smile, because 
kid I went to high school with plays or went to my high school plays at Louisiana Tech. I wonder if he pitched tonight. Um, but no, I mean, it's uh, Louisiana Tech's really, really good. By the way, like really, they good. are. They they hosted last year. They're they're a good that that program's up and running. I don't know who coaches there. Um, okay, yeah, okay. That I actually went to. Oddly enough, I went to a wedding in Ruston last year. Um, right, of, you tell me you met Carl Malone. I did after Carl Malone <laughs> saved me after I actually uh, slept through the ceremony. Wait, what? I didn't. T- I didn't tell you the full disclosure of the story. So uh, I heard this. All right, so I uh, so I go to Ruston, and this is one of MC's friends from graduate school. She went to a speech pathology school at Louisiana Monroe, and she got very close with this girl that was getting married. It was actually in the wedding, and so you know how that works. I'm going right. with her as her like date to the wedding, but if she's in it, she's gone all day doing the pictures and all that stuff, and so. Yeah. She set me up with a uh, some dudes that wanted to go play golf out at this place, like twenty minutes outside of town. I had actually, when I got in the car with them, hadn't met any of them. They were nice guys. We had a good time, drank some beers, whatever. Well, I said we get back about th- three o'clock. Ceremony's at five. I sit down in my hotel bed and I was like, "All right, I'm gonna watch one of these baseball games for a minute, and I'll get dressed in like an hour." All of a sudden, I wake up with the remote on my chest, and it's six twenty. Oh my god. So good. And I'm, I'm not in my suit. So I wake up and I, I panic. And Rustin does not have Uber. So if you're what? wondering how that, yeah, oh yeah, Rustin does not have a Uber. Town does not have Uber. Oh. oh, buddy, I asked a couple of those dudes. I was like, I don't really understand. How did you guys get from the, and now I'm telling on people of the fine people of Rustin that I don't mean to. I don't think we have too many cops that listen to this show, but I asked him, I was like, what do you mean you don't have Uber? And they're like, yeah, man. Like, I was like, how do you get around? Like, you know, at night. And he was like, yeah, we just figured it out. And I was like, well, that seems safe. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was amazed by that. But anyway, so I was like, there's no Uber. That was another main thing. I needed to catch the shuttle. Because, like, she was like, there is no Uber. You need to get on this damn bus. I was like, sure, no problem. I'm not an idiot. Shocker, I'm an idiot. <laughs> didn't make it. So I panic and I throw on this suit or whatever. And I call this taxi service from like the town over. The guy comes to get me, blah, blah, blah. I get to the reception. She's not actually that mad because she had actually just gotten there. Like the wedding party got there a little late. And what did she care if I was actually in the seats for the uh, ceremony? I through these people. Um, <laughs> but I would say I'm a little bit in the doghouse. And then all of a sudden this lady taps me on the shoulder and was like, hey, can you take a picture of my family? And I was like, sure like i'm about to play hero ball here like can can i like kiss a puppy or save a puppy or whatever the saying is too and then the dude in the shot is like 611 and i was like damn who is this guy and i took the photo and then i gave it back to her and then like one of the dudes standing next to me was like you know that's carl malone and his son and i was like no shit the mailman just took a family photo of the mailman how about that how about that? I was I almost wanted to walk over to him like, hey man, can you hype me up? Like, you know, that that took a lot of time to take that photo on your wife's iPhone. Like, can, can you tell this lady standing next to me I'm a great citizen? Because she doesn't like me right now. Right. So anyway, bringing that that was quite the tangent. Bringing it back to Earth, they got a great program over there, and they're really good. Um, and that's the classic. That game's in Ruston. That's the classic yeah. game where they're did you, Real quick, did you see how much it costs to get in and get in a seat for that game tonight? I saw with uh, uh, Ole Miss's own Ben Mintz, Mincy, grow the, grow the game, which, you know, 
whatever you think about Barstow, the stuff they're doing for college baseball, I think is really cool. $150 a ticket for a midweek game. That's, I won't call that a good sign on face value, but that is kind of cool to see the way this sport's growing. I will say this, and I don't know if you saw it. It seemed like college baseball was all over Twitter from like people that don't usually care about it last weekend. It seemed like it was really, really popular amongst the Twitter, Twitter sphere. No, we're all over it. So we've actually talked about this for a couple of years now, and I think we talked about it in our preseason thing. And I actually don't buy a ton of it having to do with the MLB lockout. I don't think a bunch of diehard MLB fans are flipping on right. college baseball to get their baseball fix. I just think with TV and everything, people – and I wrote about this in the newsletter last week before the season started – for all of its flaws from the scholarship and the funding and the third assistant, all that stuff that is still real problems with college baseball, I think with TV and everything, more and more people are realizing, like, this sport kind of kicks ass. It offers the major – like, what the Major League Baseball can't. Now, look, I'm not about to be that asshole that compares product. Like, like you know, college baseball is better than MLB baseball. Of course that's not. But, like, from the sense of urgency, like, the games matter. A 56-regular season – game regular season – with like a four-team round-robin-ish regional and then a, like a two out of three to actually get to an 18 World Series makes for a bizarrely compelling postseason. And I think more and more people are starting to realize what a cool product it is, which makes rants like Dave Van Horn even more stupid and tone deaf. I just think it's surely more people like kind of getting – like watching a college baseball game, thinking they're going to be like bored by it because of how slow baseball is. And then being like, holy shit, like, I feel like I'm on nitroglycerin pills to steal a John Rothstein reference. This sport's kind of awesome. Thoughts? <laughs> no, I mean, I think that – I mean, there's there's so much, you know, uh, cool stuff about college baseball, whether it's, you know, the condos in left field at Starville or the beer showers at Ole Miss and, you know, the crowds at Arkansas at LSU. Yeah, I think it's taken off. Um, and I'll give credit here, and I don't know why, I think, you know, you know the person or the player that I really think got people invested in caring about college baseball is? Kumar Rocker? Yeah. I think he deserves it. And I don't know if he did it on purpose or what that was. But I, for whatever reason, I've never seen people follow a kid like, like they did Kumar Rocker. And, and he, I think, helped grow the game of college baseball immensely. Yep. I think you're right. And then having, like, you know, it was, like, you're right. Kumar Rocker was the superstar. And, look, he's a – I mean, I, not that this matters very much, but look, he's a minority player in a sport that's more white that's a kind of a flamethrower, right? He puts everything he has, and I think, unfortunately, that may have led to a little bit of his arm trouble. That's, that's a dude that goes out there and absolutely hurls it and is electric to watch. And then on top of it, like, I think part of it was like, yes, this Kumar Rocker superstar, but have you seen this dude on Saturday behind him? Like, yeah. A juggernaut. <laughs> And so, like, Jack yeah. Leiter was, like, the, the Robin in the background. I think you're right, though. We, we made – not made fun. We pointed that pointed out that that duo last year was, like, kind not of as good, is it? part of the hype machine, right? From a number standpoint, Doug Nikhazy and Gunnar Hogan were actually better. But in terms of, like, marketability, you're exactly right. For whatever reason, like, Rocker was kind of the superstar and Leiter was the Robin. And I think I, that drew a lot of eyeballs on college baseball. So I, I just I'm scrolling Twitter as um, we're talking here, and I just I just saw a tweet that made me think about something you saw you said earlier in the podcast. It says uh, arguing arguing over which of these guys should start while both hammer the ball sure beats the hell out of the uh, Kale or Lafleur argument from 2021, respectfully. 
I feel, I feel like that is exactly where we're headed. It sure beats the, oh, we hit a, we put a guy in the nine hole and he hits 160 and strikes out 33% of the time. So was that a podcast-related tweet? Did someone tweet that out? Or is that just no, 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 no. He tweeted it six hours ago. Since he rubble. Smart man. I, I think that's yeah. a great way to put it. Um, yeah, no, I, that's a, it's actually – I spent 10 minutes writing down that note, and someone put that out on Twitter better than I could. Six hours ago. <laughs> Funny how that works sometimes. But, yeah, dude, I think just – I mean, you've been. I mean, we talk, we, we've, I guess, kind of experienced it because Ole Miss has been in relevant in college baseball for a while. But another aspect of it, that regional weekend for college baseball is one of the more underrated sporting events yeah. of the year. That is electric. Like it's yeah. kind of like March Madness light, which I feel like is the the greatest compliment to college baseball. I mean, it's eleven a.m. to one a.m. baseball with like your seasons on the line and a whole. I mean. Just going after it. It's it's a really good product. That weekend was my favorite weekend of the year. Uh, by the way, what rest in peace, Rebel basketball. They're they're no longer down three. Uh, but yeah, it's it's one of uh, it's it's my favorite weekend of the year. Just because man, you got you got teams all over the place that are fighting for their lives, fighting for their season. Uh, yeah, it's it's a really good product. I actually enjoy regional weekend a heck of a lot more than I do super regional weekend. I do too. It's like the. Uh... Like, they're both great, don't get me wrong, but I, I agree with regional weekend as well because, like, super regional week, it's the same thing as the NCAA tournament. Like, the round of 64 is awesome because you get 16 games a day or whatever, right, and you get all the upsets. And then, like, the super regional weekend like, – or, excuse me, not the uh, – the round of 32 two days later, I can't necessarily say I like that more, but then it's, like, almost, like, better games, even though, like, I enjoyed the round of 64 more. I feel like the exact same way about the Super Regional round. Yeah, yeah. It's – it's the Regional round, man, is really, really fun. And I guess the only difference is, is like, I don't think – and you can tell me if you think I'm wrong. I don't think a 14 seed in basketball can actually go win the national title. But, like, there's some four seeds that can screw around and win a regional. And then, like, you look up in Omaha and they're really good, like Fresno State, for example. Um, so, like, it, it kind of fills every team in a regional, you know, outside of some obvious ones, like Central Connecticut State that day against Arkansas. Um, outside of obvious, some obvious ones, it feels like anybody can kind of get out of that thing. Yeah, and if nothing else, like, beyond that, even if they're not going to win the regional – throw a wrench in it and really throw some heat on a number one seed. Because when a four seed does something like that, really who they're benefiting is the two or the winner of the two, three mm-hmm. game. Because that sucker's wide open. You remember the the year Ole Miss actually made it to Omaha, Lafayette had the regional at home, and that kid from Jackson State threw the game of his life. And they won the yeah. game one to nothing. Do you remember who almost – Yeah, it was – do you remember what that almost was? Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was almost an Ole Miss State super in Oxford. So, yeah, once you got to understand about that dynamic, it's like Ole Miss – it stayed it just played for the national title and Ole Miss baseball couldn't make it to the College World Series. And I am sitting there because Ole Miss won their regional that Monday night. And I'm sitting there like, do I want to play at home against State or do I want to go to Louisiana Lafayette? And when the game was tied in the sixth inning, my emotions took over and I figured out, yeah, I'd rather just go to Lafayette. I don't, I don't want to have to deal with that weekend. <laughs> that may have uh, that may have just broken this state. It would have been fascinating. I will, I'll throw a mad prediction out there to you. In the next 15 years, that's coming. 
I'll say this. Ole yeah, Miss I agree. Postseason to some degree is coming. I don't know how it's going to happen. But we we barely avoided it the past two times. I mean, the the year that Ole Miss went to Arkansas, it was real close to happening that year. And frankly, I wish it would have because Ole Miss could have they could have played with State. I, that the Arkansas team was just a little bit better than they were um, in nineteen. I'm, I'm not talking about last year. Um, yeah, that's coming. I will say this: I do think in fourteen, I do think. Ole won that Super Regional pretty easily. I, Ole Miss was really, really, really good that year. And that La Tech team, it's, it's, I agree with you. It's, like, ironic to say that because, remember, they were, like, 56-9 and nine or something absurd. Yeah. They all had beards. Yeah, that, I will say this about that Louisiana Lafayette team. It kind of feels like the Ole Miss team this year. Zero, like, getting an out was a root canal. Getting just one out was miserable. Um, thank God, hopefully. Purge like hit that triple or I might I might have passed out in the ninth inning. I did a story on Purdzak a couple of years ago about that hit. And I was asking him like how bad it sucked to be a pinch hitter. And he was like, Well, do you know how much it sucked to be a pinch hitter in Lafayette, dude? He's like, they didn't have batting cages behind us. Like <laughs> I was just sitting there gripping a bat, at least in Oxford, like at Swayze, I could go down, get some swings in the cages and be ready to roll. He's like, I'm just <laughs> standing there. He's like, then you don't you know, get room for a bullpen. I was like, honestly, that's a great point, man. I didn't think about that. <laughs> well, so if you remember, like the bases are loaded, and there's one out when he hits it. And it, my initial thought, like the split second when he hit it, I'm like, oh, he hit it to the first baseman. That's his three unassisted double play. And when that ball hit the ground, you could have – man, <laughs> I think that may have been one of the happier moments of my life when that ball got to the wall. Um, so, that, uh, that whole Louisiana Super Regional was insane, though, because they dropped the first one because Chris Ellis just has a bad night. And then Christian Trent throws the game of his life, and then game three about ended my life. <laughs> That's that great Christian Trent story that Sykes Orvis told me. <laughs> I was actually writing that. Uh, I was writing the story on Purdzok, but I talked to Sykes, and he, they always described Trent as that, like, kind of aloof dude who was not stupid, but never really, like, showed that he was like serious about the moment I don't mean that as like an insult like he was just one of those guys that was like he could have been going to war and been like cracking jokes about grenades or something and they were walking back on the team bus like eating their like post-game meal or whatever after they lose that game where Ellis pitches like shit and they're walking on the bus and Trent's tapping his left shoulder and they're like hey man like what are you what are you doing he's like season's right here boys I got this shit we'll be fine <laughs> Which like you kind of need a guy like that. That's kind of uncomfortable, yeah, right? You think you think John Gaddis will do that? That would be awesome. I, if I was still working in media, if they got to May, I'd be like, "Hey, man, the guy that everyone's this comparing was... you to, try to top that." <laughs> Maybe ask like, "Hey, if do like," <laughs> I don't. The only way to top that is if Gaddis was like stood up in front of the team was like, "Do we go home if we lose?" <laughs> is this <Yeah>. single, <laughs> is this single elimination at this point? I don't know. I don't know where I heard this story. I, it was on a podcast somewhere, but they they were interviewing Christian Trent about uh, Mike Bianco stories, <laughs> and Christian apparently told they they were asking like, "Do you ever get scared to shake Mike off?" He's like, "No," and he's like, "Mike doesn't care if you shake him off, so he's got a reason and all that stuff." He's like, "But the funniest Mike Bianco story I ever had was he walked out to the mound um, in Tuscaloosa one time. He said, and and I wasn't throwing real well, and he looked at me and said, "Are you hurt?" And he, I looked at him, I said, no, sir. He said, well, I'm going to need you 
to quit throwing the GD ball 85 miles an hour over the plate and just walked off, which that just encompasses Mike Bianco. The only thing that could put the cherry on top is the thing Mike used to do where he would make the uh, taller pitcher stand off the bat. <laughs> Mike would stand on top of the dirt hill to get the six inches. But I believe that. That is perfect Mike Bianco, as you just said. Oh, man. I, Mike, Mike is – I feel like Mike on the mound, like if you could just get a microphone out there, I feel like you could just sell the audio of that for, for lots of money. Well, you know, he's very demonstrative out there. Like, he's, he's – Yeah, yeah. He, Got the like, hands going? Yeah, you can't hear what he's saying, but, like, it's very obvious when he's kind of ripping a kid out there, right? Because there's no hiding it, and he'll start talking with his hands, and then he'll start doing the thing where he bobs his chest back and forth. And it's like, you know, he's not encouraging this guy out there. I can promise you that. Like, <laughs> he's, not, um, he's not telling I will say this. I will say this about Mike. Um, and it, it didn't really apply last year to, to some degree, but I do think it will this year. It, the, the theory or the, the saying about Mike and his teams, and I, and I do believe in some of it is, give, the, you know, like when you're talking about a team, it's like, I hope the offense is good because Bianco will figure out a pitching staff. I do think that is the case. This year. Like, I think Mike will figure it out enough to where they're good enough on the mound on the weekends. He's a really good pitching coach, regardless of what anybody says. I think he will figure it out enough where they're at least competent to decent on the mound on the weekends. This is a perfect thought to close out this pod because I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that for a couple of different reasons. You're right in that sense. Mike has – I mean, the fact that he figured it out last year. Right. With, look, and you can play this both ways, right? The fact that they couldn't – they didn't have dudes that could get out, get out consistently, you could say that's a problem. But the fact that he found a kid that wasn't on the travel roster until May, and then, I mean, I guess I can't give him total credit for Brandon Johnson. We never really understood why that guy didn't pitch more based on what he did when, the, when he got the opportunity. But point being, he still figured it out amongst a sea of dysfunction. I mean, they had a lot. If you think about how last year played out, they had a lot of bullpen arms just kind of failed them. And I don't mean that in like a negative sense on the kid or whoever it is. But it's just the truth of the matter. And he still figured it out and got them one game away from Omaha. And I, I realize that's not what people want to hear. But you're right in that sense is that he always kind of figures it out. And I'll pose you this because Chase pointed this out to me. I think it was last week where going into the season, and this plays into the low stock guys, returners versus new guys, and how he's allotting the innings. Apparently Mike has mentioned a couple times about not wanting to get to mid-March where they're a week or two into SEC play, where he has like 11 guys where he kind of has some sample size on but doesn't exactly know what their role is or who he can trust versus wanting to have like five guys. It's not even a role thing but knows he can absolutely trust. He's apparently said that a couple of times. And I think that plays into – one, what played out last year, and two, what we talked about as the season progressed last year to where, I mean, you think about it, this time last year we were hyping up the bullpen about possibly being the deep it's ever been, right? Because we had limited sample sizes, but these guys, you know, had kind of shown promise. And, like, Mike's kind of going in the other direction now, if that makes sense. Like, he'd kind of rather have the four or five known commodities and not overcomplicate things. And I'm curious how that will factor into decision-making into who gets innings. 
mean, if that's the approach, then, you, you know, you would think that this weekend, if there's close games, that people on the mound are the guys that he trusts. Um, he's not going to get guys to just get innings. And, you know, he's going to put guys in situations to win baseball games. So that'll be interesting to see. Um, I will, you know, like I said, I, I fully trust that by the time May rolls around, Mike Bianco will have it figured out on the mound. Um, I do not think that Ole Miss will be a – you know, or underachieve because they did not figure it out on the mound. So um, I think they'll be good there. I think they'll have some depth. I think there's some some options there. It's just going to – it's really going to come down for this team and this year. It's really going to come down to me. Um, are they able to find three guys on the weekend that can consistently get the job done? If they can, the sky's the limit for this team. If they can't, that's where, you know, you, you, hope, you, you hope you score a lot, a lot of runs and, and you know, mask a whole lot of mistakes. This exercise would be too cringeworthy to actually do. But it would probably be the best way to encapsulate this. So, like, we did that first podcast starting this whole Rippy Rights deal. Honestly, holy shit, what's the day? We got about the, we're, we're close to the year anniversary of this whole Rippy Rights thing. I'll send you a yeah. um, <laughs> When Last year, March, like, 2nd or whatever, when we were first starting out, like, think about it this way. Did you ever think the bullpen would have been an issue? Because I remember thinking in February last year, right. March, that it would have been a strength. And then it got like six weeks later and it was like, holy shit, they can't get anybody out. And like that's yeah, kind of the wild contrast of it. And that might be why Mike is taking this approach. Right. That we can in Texas, you're like, wow, they got dudes that are, they got dudes that are dudes that are sick. Um, and, you know, and so now they're just able to get more trusted to work. So. Yeah, um, it's funny how things change. But I just – I feel like there's so, some options this year they can play. I feel like they've added a lot in recruiting. Um, and, you know, when you add in some guys last year that got to pitch some big innings, I, I just kind of think that they'll uh, they'll be okay. Um, by the way, did you see uh, Cody Adcock committed to Arkansas a few, few days ago? I saw that. I thought he committed a while back. I actually thought he was on their roster. Has he pitched? No, I mean, he went to JUCO. He went to JUCO, oh. didn't he? So – I, I thought he went to Chico. I could be wrong. There may be some uh, – he may have he may have done the old Arkansas, hell, I need to go to Juco back to Arkansas thing. Maybe Cody, <laughs> Cody Adcock, uh, uh, SEC semifinal starter, correct? Yeah. And – well, no. Oh, okay. He did transfer to Arkansas. Um, 2023 season. So, he is a Juco. Um, but, yeah. It's. I remember that Saturday in Hoover because I was there, or that Friday night they beat they beat Lighter with Tyler Myers, and we're just sitting around. It's like, who who are they going to throw? Like the the options are not plentiful, and it like started hearing like Cody Adcock. It's like, well, better score a hundred. Then the kid pitched pretty well. He was kind of good. <laughs> he made it through three innings, okay, right? I did from yeah. what I <laughs> He made it through three innings and gave up two runs. But, like, Arkansas hit, like, three balls to the wall that Kevin Graham caught with his back on the wall. And it's like, I sure am glad that wind was blowing in. And then somehow they only – Ole Miss only scored two runs that day. <laughs> hey, look, man, use every part of the ballpark. Um, <laughs> so, uh, last, last rant like – we're going off ta- – who cares? We're, this is off the road yeah. at this point. Tyron Myers, did, didn't he get booted off the team? No, you're thinking of Forsyth. Oh, that is My, Myers. Myers graduated. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm thinking of. Um, sorry to sorry, sorry to the Myers family out there for slandering. Yeah, your he's son. still at Ole Miss, like doing grad school and stuff. We mentioned Myers, Myers early in the pod, and I spent no less than eight minutes trying to figure that out on my phone. And I was like, "Damn it, why can't I find this suspension article?" And that was uh, 
that would be <laughs> <laughs> he is Colin Rister, Rippy Wright's baseball correspondent. I had us at like a crisp 45 minutes. I was going to let you go yeah. let you get some rest. I'm blaming this one on you because you got me on the Mike Bianco tangent. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. I have nothing else to do. We'll talk to you again Sunday. Good luck this weekend. Fowler Hodge is soon. All right, my man. Sounds good. All right, that was Colin Brister. Appreciate his time as always. You can catch us again on Sunday evenings uh, as we were making that a weekly thing. Again, this year, just like we did last year when we started up this whole podcast in early March. So Colin will be on to do a series recap on Sunday. And, uh, you know, we'll see what, uh, what unfolds this weekend as we start learning more and more about this team. All right, let's get to your mailbag questions. It was a strong showing for the People's Holiday after a little bit of a lighter one last week. So I appreciate everyone uh, participating, and we will answer them all. If I ever get to a point where I can't answer them all, then uh, that means the People's Holiday has taken off beyond my wildest dreams. So for now, we answer them all. Here we go. All right, Hayes Dubberly checking in to lead us off here. How, how, excuse me, <laughs> how can you justify firing Mike Bianco for making the Sweet 16 almost every year now with 10,000 folks in the stands. But on the other hand, you keep Kermit Davis with a losing record and maybe 3,000 folks. That's maybe putting it generously based on crowd shots I saw. That's uh, my word. It's not his. Doesn't make logistical sense to me. Yeah, it's, a, it's not an invalid question, but this is also not an apples-to-apples apples comparison. You do have a point. But each side of this has to be viewed, I think, through a different lens. Because, one, look at – I was about to say the history. Mike Bianco's been there 20 years. I think that works both for and against him. He should get the benefit of the doubt because he's been here 21 years and basically has built Ole Miss baseball into what it is today, right? Ole Miss really had no baseball tradition or history before that, aside from you know, a couple years in the 70s and a team or two in the 90s that was okay. So, But I think that also works to his detriment, too, because part of this college sports arc and why people are invested and why people are fans is because they want to reach – heights they haven't reached before, right? It's the build to the top of the mountain. Um, you know, Lane Kiffin's stock is high as ever right now because he goes, you know, four and five or five and five in year one and then 10 and two last year. Well, what happens if Lane Kiffin goes eight and four this year? There's a world where Lane Kiffin goes eight and four and the team is not actually any worse than it was a year ago. You could also make an argument that could be better. Maybe they just another one score game went the other way, whereas Ole Miss won every single close game it was in last year. That's not the point, not to get off into a Lane Kiffin tangent, but people want to see the build. And if Ole Miss goes 8-4, and four, I think that's a pretty damn good record for Ole Miss football this year. But I don't think Lane Kiffin's stock is going to be as high because, you know, in year two, he went 10-2, and two, and people are thinking, okay, now what's next? Like, can you make the playoff? Can you contend for the West? And people are impatient. And so Mike has seemingly – plateaued in terms of his what he's done in the postseason and I think that's hurt him I think people see it as the same thing every year and so when you go into a season where it's not like it's a hopeless experience people when they I guess when people feel like they know the outcome that is more frustrating than sometimes just sheer futility is uh, in a weird way. That's just kind of how we operate as fans. And so I think that's working against Mike a little bit. Uh, the program, I remember when I was still working full time in 2019, when that was really bad, I wrote countless times that it felt like the program was going stale. And I think that's a good, great way to put it. And you think 10,000 folks in the stands, what do you mean it's going stale? And that set another record for season ticket holders. Like, what are you talking about? Well, I think baseball is a little different in that sense. People go for the experience, and Mike Bianco deserves a lot of credit. I mean, look at Swayze Field when he got here versus 
um, now. And as much as as much shit as I like to give that tent wedding reception looking venue out in right field, um, it's just another like they're they're literally just sticking luxury seating where they can fit it in now because you know there's a demand for it. And I think he deserves credit for that. But the point in the the ticket sales part of it, I think people just go for the experience. I mean. I didn't get to do a ton of this when I was working and while I was in college because I covered baseball pretty much from the start. But like you guys listening have been out to a baseball game when it's nice weather in the middle of April. It's awesome. And yes, you would prefer to watch Ole Miss win. But I mean, I remember I went out there one time. I had an off day that was uh, happened to be on my birthday one year in like 2018, somewhere around there. I can't really remember. And they wanted to go, the group I was with wanted to go to the baseball game. And I was like, that is literally the last place I'd rather be. I, the last place I'd like to be. But I went anyway, and I had a great time. I sat out in left field, and I can't tell you I remember a single pitch of that game. And it's not because of how quickly I emptied my cooler. I was just walking around talking to folks. The game was very much secondary. That might not be the case for everybody. I'm sure some diehards are probably irritated to hear that. But I think a lot of people go for the experience and the social event aspect of it. It's outside. It's sort of like the Grove. People enjoy the weather. Um, the ambi- the kind of ambiance that goes with baseball. And so I don't think that season tickets thing is necessarily indicative or a direct correlation to how people feel about the direction of the program. I think it's a decent indicator. I think Mike Bianca's approval rating amongst the fan base is probably higher than some of his detractors might think, but I don't think it's a straight line correlation like you see in basketball because does anyone, when you're in the Ole Miss basketball program, so does anyone go just to hang out in the pavilion? No, it's a very nice building. It's pretty sick they have a Canes in there. But, like, no one's just going to hang out like it's a social event because basketball is just not really a a sport designed for that. It's not not like tailgating for football games. It's not, you know, there's tradition aspect of it too, right? I mean, part of the reason Ole Miss continues to do so well in baseball attendance is there's a tradition of right field, left field showers and all of that. And Ole Miss just doesn't have that in basketball. So, anyway, point being – I think the plateau has hurt Mike. And then I think another part of it is, is he went and interviewed for a sitting SEC West rival in Birmingham. And we don't have uh, this past summer. And I think that's what makes this season a little bit different. And so we don't have to rehash everything that happened last summer, but you talk about PR 101. Mike got, must've gotten an F in that class in college because that was some really boneheaded management of that entire situation, particularly after you just lost game three of a super uh, for the, second time in as many full seasons after 2019 and you're like one in seven or whatever it is in games to get to Omaha or one in five I guess that would be um so I think that's part of it I think people are tired of it I think people are thinking the program's going stale and they'd like to see it right so I think that's different and Mike Bianco you could argue is getting gotten more resources I would say as he's built success so I don't think it's an apples to apples lens there whereas Kermit if you, if you want to make the argument that Kermit should be fired after this year, I'm not going to begrudge you for it by any stretch of the imagination. But basketball is different because it's the sport in the middle. Ole Miss doesn't really support it. Um, there's really no history of consistent success in Ole Miss basketball. And with Kermit, the product has looked unwatchable at times. And I know you're not arguing like pro Kermit or whatever. I'm just kind of trying to color in all sides of this. But like, it doesn't look great. They struggle offensively, and it looks – talk about hope. It looks kind of hopeless. It's a tough watch. And, you know, you forget last year, Ole Miss was one game away from making the NCAA tournament. If Ole Miss had beaten LSU on that Friday night in Nashville in the SEC basketball tournament, 
I don't want to go revisionist history here, but odds are they were going to make the NCAA tournament. And I'll ask you this. Did anyone have fun watching Ole Miss basketball last year? It was kind of like getting a root canal. They really struggled offensively. To his credit, they guarded their ass off. But, like, it wasn't a fun product to watch even when they were winning. And, you know, Kermit's a second half away from making two NCAA tournaments in three years. Like, when's the last time an Ole Miss coach did that? I think that would have actually changed, completely changed the way people look at him and uh, and this team and this program. And then the other part of that is, on top of it not looking great, his roster evaluations have been terrible. Um, he's got a bunch of dudes that I don't think other programs saw as high major players on the roster when he probably should have hit the JUCO portal hard. What do, what do I mean by all of this and why am I going off in the tangent? I guess what I'm getting at is, that is true. The point is, I think Mike has become a little bit of a victim, not even a little bit, Mike has become a victim of uh, his, of raised expectations that he raised. And Kermit has lower expectations. And so I think that's probably how you justify it. Because at the end of the day, it's not the same thing in terms of getting to the Sweet 16 in basketball and baseball. I know as people, as much as people want to like compare it as the same thing, but man, if you host a regional in baseball, you play uh, you know, you get, you get the chance to get to that Sweet 16 in your own home ballpark. And, you know, they deserve credit for hosting that regional. But, like, it's not exactly the same. I would argue it's harder to get to the Sweet 16 in basketball. So that's part of it as well. And then Kermit is honestly given the benefit of the doubt because of lower expectations. You, you know, right, wrong, fair, unfair, I think that's why. And at the end of the day, I'll pose it this, because I've never been on the fire Bianco train as much as uh, he – especially he and I might not see eye to eye at times. Um, I think he's a great coach. I think he's what he's done here is, is pretty remarkable. But, you know, there's the, the – I wouldn't underestimate the plateauing aspect of things and how that kind of breeds frustration, even though it doesn't necessarily breed apathy. And, you know, I guess the last question I'll pose is this. How long is too long? I mean, are we going to be talking about the first return trip to Omaha in 25 years, 22? I mean, this year if they don't make it, it'll be one in 22. At some point – you just kind of got to make a change just to see if you can get over the mountaintop and roll the dice and make a gamble. So I think that is why coupled with the LSU thing, that was a really long answer. I'm not sure it was any good, but Hey, we're here. All right. Keeping it moving here. LFG shirts checking in. Is it required? Is it a requirement for all MPW digital podcasters to say the word standpoint 10 times per episode? Do I say standpoint a lot? Uh, now you're in my head. Not really, but, um, I don't know. I've never, uh, never noticed that one. I, uh, I'll have to check with, uh, I'll have to check with HR, check with management, and get back to you. Uh, I'm not getting paid extra to say standpoint a bunch. I know I have uh, crutches for uh, words like uh, that I overuse at times and like habits that I should probably break. I didn't know standpoint was uh, was was one of them. Which uh, I guess this week is as good a week to remind the people again. I was uh, I got into the podcasting game because my bosses at Super Talk made me. I was a writer by trade. Um, that is kind of what most of my background is in, and uh, so uh, I am not a professional podcaster. My dream was never to be uh, Jim Nance or Joe Rogan um, by any stretch of the imagination. I wanted to do really exactly what I did this past week, and I would just like my dream job. I think would be just writing long form stories and kind of having the time to go dig in and find stories with uh, a lot of depth to them. So like that's, I feel where my greatest strength is. Uh, it is certainly not sitting in front of a zoom with you fine people answering your questions and trying to sound professional. Never really tried to do that. I've tried to sound like myself and uh, 
And as if we were drinking a beer on the square together, I hope that would not sound much different. Uh, possibly clean up the language a little bit versus me on the, uh, having a beer on the square. So that's always been my goal with podcasting. I know that's not what you asked, but I've actually gotten that question before. So figured I would just springboard off of it. But uh, sure, from that standpoint, thanks for the question. <laughs> All right, here we go. Keeping it moving. Kyle Wilson asks this. Will this be the highest turnover of SEC basketball coaches ever? This is a good question, and I'm not sure how to quantify it. When I got this question last night, I tried to look up, like, SEC coaches fired by the year, and there was no database, and I was not about to go chart that by hand as much as I love the people's holiday and appreciate your question, Kyle. But it has to be up there without having any, like, basis of knowledge to go off of, of like, what's the most in the last 20 years. It's, it's got to be up there. Like, let's just roll through it. Conzo Mar Martin is gone. I almost pulled a Brian Haydad for any of you radio listeners out there. The guy could not say Conzo Martin's name. Um, he's probably gone. Tom Crean is gone. So that's two. I think Kermit Davis is safe. That's just a hunch. I don't really know any. I don't know anything. So we can take that one off. But that was certainly like a possibility. Uh, Frank Martin, who knows? I would think the bloom is off the rose there, and he's probably gone. So for the sake of the argument, we'll put that in there. That's three. If Mississippi State doesn't make the NCAA basketball tournament and they got absolutely blown out by South Carolina the other night uh, in a game that really would have changed the fortune, like the changed the outlook on their like realistic shot to make the tournament uh, dramatically, and they weren't competitive in that game. So I think Howland is out. That's four. Keep it going around. Tennessee, safe. Uh, Kentucky, safe. LSU, safe. A&M, safe. Um, who am I missing here? Alabama safe, Auburn safe, Vanderbilt and Jerry Stackhouse. I don't know much about that one, but that would seem like he is probably on the way out. That seems like it's been a very odd marriage and a bit of a tumultuous relationship from the start. So we'll go, that's five. And then that leaves you with what? Um, I think we just hit all of them. Yeah, Arkansas safe. So that's five coaches. That's a lot. I mean, that's A third of the league. So, yeah, I would say that's pretty close up there, which is pretty crazy because in a weird way, if a couple bounces don't go on Mrs. Way or, you know, Mike White and Florida seem to have figured out a bit. But that's another one. I didn't even think about Florida. That's potentially six. I, I don't know what that's going to look like. Florida's now what? They are – seven and eight in conference play. So – Hell, that's yeah. That that could get dicey as well. So Mike White in Florida, that's six. So that's almost half the league. So that's uh, yeah, that could certainly be close to the highest ever. I would bet without wagering on it that six in a year is the highest ever, particularly since, uh, well, definitely since Missouri and A and M joined the SEC. Tyler Fitch checks in to ask, you can only eat one protein in preparations. One pro, what does this mean? One protein in one preparation style for the rest of your life. What's your choice? Oh, I thought we were about to go on a protein shake deal here. And I was like, buddy, have you, like, I don't know if you know what I look like, but like, I'm not exactly on the gas. Um, not, not, not huge in the protein shake industry or well-versed in that, but you're asking about meat. I'll probably just go steak. That'd be the easiest one. Um, I like chicken. I like salmon, but uh, I'm probably just going to go filet. Does that count? Anyway, thanks for the question. Al Alex Harrelson 
asks, oh, we got we need to have a soccer corner. I need to get Weldon back on. Uh, apparently, soccer corner's heating up. I keep getting messages about it. Um, we'll have Weldon on maybe soon for like a pre-spring deal, and we will hit all the uh, soccer storylines as well. Alex Harrelson checks in to ask, the Brentford Bees play at Newcastle Saudi Oil Money Stadium at 9 o'clock. Who wins or is it a draw? Should this be – should the should this game or should this match? Excuse me, damn it, the terminology. Should this match be for my loyalty and who I who I espouse my loyalty to, um, as far as the uh, the English Premier League goes? Because the Brentford Bees just not really doing it for me anymore. Uh, I don't know off the top of my head where they sit in the standings, but uh, Saudi Castle is just too uh, interesting for me. And so if they win this game, we might have to make a team switch. I don't know if I do the deal where I burn the Brentford Jersey that I don't own and throw on the uh, cool looking Newcastle one that uh, has all the stripes um, and stuff on it. But uh, that's certainly on the table. I'm going to say Brentford wins this for now. Saudi Castle is now out of relegation. Huge news. We got to have Weldon back on. They're now out of the relegation realm. They need this one worse, but I'm still going to go with uh I'm going to go with my Brentford Bees, even though they're sliding uh, sliding closer and closer. I don't think they'll be relegated. Uh, and by that, I mean I have no idea. I count like four spots in between them and the relegation uh, slots. So that seems safe, but who the hell knows? Um, so, sure, I'll go Brentford for now. But uh, if Saudi Castle wins, I might, uh, might have to make a switch there. Rob Brown. As uh, checks in here, what is uh or here we go? Why haven't we tried McCants at third base? Kim at third, Bench at center field, Leatherwood and Alderman at right field, and DH feels like the best option for the offense. And having Bench in center field is the best defensive option. Uh, yeah, no, you're correct on that last part. So this is an interesting question, and I'd say one, it's early. They could figure they like they're still figuring some things out. McCants is a natural infielder by trade, and that's never that's one thing I never figured out last year was when it became clear that McCant just hit way too way too well to be taken out of the lineup I mean all that kid's done from the entire time he's walked on campus and gotten an opportunity is hit he's a great hitter he's I think he's a pretty good infielder even though we haven't seen it yet I think there were a couple games where we saw him at second base last year very early in the season unless my memory is uh deceiving me but it's a great question and one of the things I didn't understand last year was when that became the lineup why was Bench not playing center and McCants at third? That seems like a win-win for an already defensively challenged outfield on last year's team. And so Mike is not dumb as much as uh, as many people, as irritated as some people get with him and may want to challenge that. He's forgotten more baseball than I'll ever know. So I'm sure there's a reason for that, why McCants hasn't been played or tried at third base, and we just don't know it. Because there's just no way that hasn't come up in conversation, particularly last year, when it made the most sense, right? The best center field play Ole Miss got all of last year was for Justin was with Justin Bench, and you know McCants was tasked with pretty much a, a pretty impossible job, right? I mean, as a freshman in the SEC, playing center field versus a corner outfield spot is wildly different and a much harder challenge. And so, you know, he did the best he could, but once that lineup became say, set, I never understood why they didn't just flip the two. And so, there's got to be a reason for it. So, I, I don't have a great answer for you. Um, but there just has to be something there because, again, why, he's a natural infielder. Why would you not have tried this? So, anyway, great question. But I agree with it. I just don't know. Uh, I really don't know the answer. John Ashton Hicks, if you could be in attendance for at any historic sporting event ever, 
what would you choose and why? I'm currently re-watching the movie Miracle, and that would have been insane to be at. You know, it's funny, as I was reading this question before I finished it, that was the first one that popped into my head, the Miracle and Ice game, um, just with everything going on in the country then. And then oddly enough, kind of what we got going on in uh, Eastern Europe right now, like, not that that would be like any sort of parallel, but that was just, that was the first thing that popped into my mind for whatever reason. So I think that one's up there on the short list. I think Tiger Woods at the 2019 Masters would certainly be up there. Um, honestly, Tiger at the, was that the 05 Masters where he had the chip in on 16 would be pretty cool. Um, I, I hate going on the golf thing, but Tiger versus Rocco Mediate in the 18-hole playoff at Torrey Pines where Tiger wins it on one ACL would have been pretty cool. Uh, going elsewhere, I'm trying to think of just off the top of my head, pretty cool sporting events. I'm sure there's some that I just haven't like thought of yet. I'm not even a Saints fan, but the Favre interception going to the Super Bowl would have been pretty badass. The 2016 Cubs World Series Game 7 in Cleveland certainly won. So those are a couple options, but I'm probably going to go Tiger Woods and the 2020 Masters as my final answer. So those were three or five. There's, I'm sure there's six or seven that I left off that people are like, how did you not think of this? But uh, you know, whatever. It's eight o'clock in the morning and uh, I'm halfway through the first coffee. So that is uh, my three to five list there. Jack Colbertson asks, between, if you had to pick between Kiffin, Bianco, and Kermit to be the new coach for Saudi Castle United next season, who would you pick? Hmm. Well, the merch sales would go up if you picked Kiffin. I don't think Mike Bianco would be very conducive uh, to the uh, English Premier League soccer crowd. Um, I think they would call him a wanker pretty quickly, and then he would get very angry about that and take it out on whatever poor schmuck that's uh, maybe just starting out in media that covers Saudi Castle United. And then Kermit. Um, Kermit, they would not score. The, the, I, would, I would be confident in Saudi Castle's ability to defend and not uh, give up goals, but in terms of actually putting the, uh, putting the ball in the back of the net, I am, uh, I'm not really sure. Um, that I feel great about Kermit's ability to do that. I'm sure Kermit would recruit and sign a lot of uh, whatever the League One is below Premier League players, uh, and that would be an issue. So I'm going to go Lane Kiffin. His stock is high. He's good on offense. Uh, he would rock the hell out of one of those Saudi Castle-looking jerseys. So I'm going to go Kiffin. Maybe he could bring the Ted Lasso visor over the pond with him. Um, I'm sure if someone called him a wanker, he would find a way to spin that into a positive on social media. So I, uh, I'm going to go Lane Kiffin. Uh, Barrett Parker responded to this question and said, Dirty Mike, I'm not so sure about that. I would like to see it play out, but that's kind of like uh, the car crash you can't look away from. So uh, I'm not so sure about Mike Bianco uh, uh, ingratiating himself with the fine and often crazy people of the English Premier League soccer world. So appreciate the question there. Caleb Sailors asks, why does Ben Van Cleve continue to get at bats? Yeah, so this is, a, this is an interesting one. Last year, he got at bats because Ole Miss ended up having one hole in their lineup, right? It was the Kale Baker, Trey LaFleur. Um, I guess you could put Hayden Leatherwood in there, although he was right field and pretty much locked down that. I don't really understand the Plumlee platooning thing. We can get to that in a second. But Ole Miss basically ended up when you had eight guys at eight spots to fill or nine in the bat, as it pertained to the batting order. They were pretty decent through eight. And had a couple guys slump, and sometimes they were seven deep. And so there was opportunities for Ben Van Cleve where he just kind of lived with it. Um, I'm not a huge – I don't have a ton of stock um, in Ben Van Cleve. Um, he's the most intimidating singles hitter of all time. But he does hit decently well to 
contact and he does like he doesn't strike out a ton and puts the ball in play and you know I mean he walked nine times in 102 at bats last year so that's I guess that's like 110 ish plate appearances depending on his HPPs uh, 115 plate appearances so I think last year he got he got at bats because Ole Miss just kind of had to live with someone in there because Kale Baker just kind of became what he was right he could hit you know lower velocity fastballs, you know, a mile, but anything else he really seemed to struggle with, particularly the off-speed and breaking stuff. So this year, though, I think that's probably going to change because now what you're getting, if Kemp Alderman, if he is – like what he's doing, you know, what he's done through four games continues to be real and catching up to velocity is not a problem and that, you know, strength is real and he becomes a more well-rounded hitter. Uh, you know, he was the talk of the fall in the winter scrimmages. And so if that lives up to expectation – Ole Miss is genuinely going to be 10-11 deep, and it's going to be hard to find at-bats for a guy like even Hayden Leatherwood, even though going back to whoever just asked the question about the lineup and why not put Leatherwood DH right, whatever, I agree with that. But it's going to be hard to find at-bats for a lot of these guys. And so if you made me wager on someone being the odd man out, I think it's Ben Van Cleve. And so, you know, he doesn't strike out a lot. I think Mike trusts him. This is weird to say, but I've heard Mike say it before, and I know this is a fact. He's a decent bunter. And for whatever reason, I think Mike likes having an option uh, in the lineup uh, to bunt. Just, you know, if you ever need it, I guess, you know, with people rolling their eyes at that. I'm just telling you part of the equation that goes into how Mike Bianco evaluates Ben Van Cleve. And so I think that's why. And I think he's getting opportunities early in the year. But if Ben Van Cleve is still getting, you know, two starts or seven, eight at bats on a weekend in April – I'd be surprised, and that would tell me that a couple of guys have either gotten injured or faltered around him. And so, uh, you know, not to be unfair to the kid, but I think that's probably going to phase itself out. I think he will be a valuable bench option. Look, again, I've never had a huge stock in Ben Van Cleve as a regular everyday player, but I think he's a good pinch hit option because of the reasons we outlined, right? He doesn't strike out a ton. You know, he's got a pretty decent – I would say a pretty decent eye at the plate. And, you know, he hit 255 last year. And I think from, like, March on, that was close to 270-something. So it's not the worst option in the world to have off the bench as a pinch hitter. But, if, you know, if he's a platoon DH guy to, you know, mostly full-time starter, that's a different story. And so I think you're going to see your own question answered uh, as we get deeper into the season. Let's see. Cody Wiley, this is still topical. Did Mike Bank, did Mike kill, did Leatherwood run over Mike's dog two years ago? Yeah, I, again, I got nothing for you on that. I don't understand it. Mike, I understood some of the defensive replacement stuff late in games, like get Plumlee out there, throw the season a bone, get the fast kid out there in a defensively challenged outfield. But I didn't understand the left-handed stuff. Mike, again, forgotten more baseball than I'll ever know. I don't get the Leatherwood thing. You probably just heard Colin and I talk about it a ton, so I think we covered a decent bit of it. But I'm Team Leatherwood. I think he should probably start, and that should be the end of it. I, I get it. You got to give Alder a minute bats. You know where else are you going to find it? But I think I think Leatherwood is either the right fielder or the DH, and Alderman's the other one. Um, but then the Reagan Burford thing is is another part of it, right? So if Reagan Burford continues to hit, and you can put bench in center. Then what do you do? Um, that even ties back to the question about McCants at third. Do you just kind of nix the the Burford thing and just roll with the nine guys you have? That being Leatherwood. And um, Alderman and just not overcomplicated. So there's a lot of stuff, but this is the time of year where you figure it out. So um, again, I'm f- firmly on the let team, uh, let Hayden Leatherwood uh, team for sure. Uh, I'm firmly in that camp. So 
Weird internet names. That's a new one. Oh, I see what you did there. Did you actually do this? Someone put that. Someone put that. I, I get baffled by the internet names each week, and someone literally put their name as weird internet names. If you did that on purpose, props to you. That is high level internet comedy. Anyway, sorry. What What is something fans are overreacting to from watching the first four games that they shouldn't be? What is something that has surprised you after watching the first four games? Good question. Something that has surprised me has been the newcomers um, and how, look, through four games, it, again, this could qualify as both something I'm surprised by and an overreaction. We'll just see how it plays out. But, you know, Mike going to the Riley Maddoxes, the Hunter Elliotts of the world, over the Wes Burtons and Jackson Kimbrels and uh, kind of those guys that were, were already on the roster, played a little bit of a role in a struggling bullpen last year. And uh, instead of kind of seeing them get work, I don't think – I know for a fact that neither one of them, Jackson Kimbrell – or Wes Burton has pitched this year. I think both will pitch this weekend. I think part of it is that they've only had one game go nine innings. And so, you know, they were supposed to have played 36 innings by now, and I think they played like 27. So you've essentially lost a nine-inning game because Ole Miss's offense is just obliterated inferior pitching to the point of uh, opposing teams' inferior quality competition wanting a run rule. So I think that's part of it. But I think the surprising part of it is, uh, is that how much one Mike has, I guess – seemingly trust these uh, guys I think it's you know it's early in the year but I made the point where he goes to Hunter Elliott in the 5-2 game on Sunday where I don't think anyone in their right mind thought Ole Miss was going to lose to Charleston Southern but the game wasn't completely um, out of reach at that point was it 5-2 to two or 3-1 to one when he went to Elliott I can't I can't remember but you get my point and so that surprised me a little bit and then how how good they've looked um I mean, Riley Maddox, the 94, 95-mile-hour fastball with an 82-mile-an-hour slider, that shit will play against anybody. Um, and so that think that part has surprised me. And, again, it could be an overreaction. So as far as uh, what fans are overreacting to so far, hmm, that's a good one. Because it's, I feel like most of the time, like, there hasn't been – there's always something that jumps out early in the year where people are uh, pissed off about it. Uh, maybe it's the Ben Van Cleef thing and why Leatherwood isn't getting at bats. I don't understand it either, but just let it play out. Let's get 15 games into this thing. And if Mike Bianco is still not having Hayden Leatherwood as an everyday guy and Leatherwood is still hitting in the opportunities that he gets, like he got against Pine Bluff, right? He comes on and pinch hits and relieves Alderman and hits the ball over the fence. So if that guy continues to hit and Mike does not have him in the everyday lineup, um, then I will understand it and it won't be an overreaction. But for right now, the the – fluidness of the lineup I think maybe has I don't want to say frustrated some fans because I think most people kind of get it but it's being talked about a lot and I don't think it's actually that big of an issue I think they're going to figure it out and this this year it's it's not coming from how do we fill with this ninth hole in the lineup and how do we uh like how do we just find someone decent enough to live with as that ninth guy now he's trying to find now he's trying to decide between 11 dudes who's the best and how he gets the at-bats so that's a much better problem to have so there hasn't been any huge overreaction so far, but I guess that would qualify as one. The lineup being in flux, I think that's going to continue to happen. So, um, let's see. Oh, I lost my place. We had a couple more of these mailbag questions to get to before we get out of here. Hold on, let me regain it. My internet's uh, acting funny on me this morning, as typical when I'm recording a podcast. Uh, let's see. All right, here we go. Keeping it moving. Silly man, chilly man checking in here. I'm curious after reading your article, which was great, by the way. Thanks, man. I really appreciate that. 
how you were able to set up an interview with Tremisha Joyner and her husband. Did you set it up yourself or are you even allowed to talk about that? No, I can talk about it. There's no, uh, there's no uh, subject interviewee confidentiality agreement here. Um, I guess without going too nerd inside journalism, like inside baseball journalistic nerd here, um, it's really not that complicated. I came across um, really a social media post and you, you come across stories, particularly human interest ones in a variety of ways, if you're looking hard enough for them. And I've always tried to make it a point to look for stories like that, because those are the ones that I enjoy the most. I enjoy, look, the sports aspect of it is cool. I, you know, I'll never take for granted, you know, getting paid to opine and provide analysis and write about sports because, you know, I grew up loving sports and it doesn't, none of this feels like a job, like shocker. I'm not making millions of dollars on this podcast as much as I love to joke about it. I enjoyed doing this um, as much as ever. And I guess if I ever like stopped enjoying it, uh, it's probably when I would cease to do it anymore. So point being, as much as I love the sports side of it, I really enjoyed writing about people more and the kind of the common everyday struggles that people overcome because I just find that interesting um, and kind of humanizing these people because so often we look at them as entertainment and these invincible figures and they deal with the same problems that we have. So I was I saw a social media post about it and I was like oh brain aneurysm like that's that's tough and then I kind of connected the dots and I was like okay she has surgery on September 27th how the hell is she back at a football game you know less than a month later so I just reached out via Instagram DM um, because that was the first place I discovered it and she was more than willing to talk and look as much as credit I was like I would like to take for you know writing the story and all that a lot of times the interviewee makes the story and she was uh she was fantastic. I talked to her for almost two hours. And sometimes in these interviews, one, it's always better, better to have someone who talks too much than someone who talks too little that you're trying to just extract information out of. But sometimes when someone talks too much, it can be difficult to steer the conversation back on course. If I had to, like, if I had to call it, she was probably like the perfect balance. She was thorough. She was detailed. And I just kind of let her go um, in that sense and just tell me everything that she remembered happening. And so that was really all there was to it, man. And then um, I asked if she thought Randall would be interested in talking, and she said, sure. And because Randall is an employee of Ole Miss Athletics, right, and on the football team, I cleared it with media relations just to not – not that I think they would care in an instance like this, but anytime it's an Ole Miss person, you kind of have to go through media relations. And so I cleared it with them. I texted Randall. He was happy to talk. And that was really pretty much the gist of it. Um, there weren't any uh, dark – like it uh dark secrets behind it or any uh, sort of like um maneuvering it was really just that simple and um we talked i talked about this on hand raised guys on thursday nights in college athletics media relations is a lot more stringent like when i was interning for the reds or for mlb.com covering the reds professional sports is different man you just walk into a clubhouse and it's free reign to talk to whoever wants to talk to you and you want to talk to and when you hear like reporters talk about developing relationships in college, that's not really the case with like coaches and players. It's developing relationships and like and sourcing elsewhere, kind of people on the peripheral. But in professional sports, it's de definitely developing relationships with players and coaches because, you know, if you develop a relationship with Joey Votto, you can go talk to him in the locker room, you know, twice a day, basically every day they have a game if you ever need something from him. And if he doesn't want to talk to you, then he can tell you to piss off. And so it's a much different dynamic. And college is much more controlled. We don't go talk to these kids in the locker room. We have to ask and we have to get approved to have them come out and talk after games. Like you put in requests. That doesn't mean your request has to be granted. And so it's a lot harder to get access to these 
to these coaches and players in like a, a one-on-one setting in particular. And so a lot of times you get the better stories on the peripheral. I didn't have to go through Ole Miss media relations to talk to Tremisha. And I probably wouldn't have had to, to talk to Randall in this sense. I just did it because kind of a courtesy thing. I didn't want to like piss anyone off. Not that I really care living in Dallas now, but um, so that was kind of part of it. Uh, that was really the gist of it. So there was really nothing, nothing there uh, that was really that interesting. I just reached out via DM and she was happy to talk. You'd be surprised at the amount of people that are interested in talking about themselves. And I don't mean that in a bad way and talking about the things that way they went through. Um, people are generally pretty open about that, about sharing their experiences, because in some ways, not to get too zen here, but it's therapeutic in some ways, I think, to talk about it and kind of relive it and have it out in the open. And she was pretty adamant on social, or pretty uh, consistent on social media about like sharing her story and encouraging people to go get checked. So, you know, she was not bashful about sharing it at all and made for a great story. And I appreciate her time. So that was pretty much uh, the gist of it there. Nothing overly complicated about that. Let's see if I missed anything. I want to make sure I got to all the mailbag questions. Um, let's see here. I think, no, we got a couple more. Sorry. Would Putin, would Putin hit his weight a buck 40? Maybe Uh, that's, we're guessing Vladimir Putin's weight here in SEC West baseball. Um, no, to hell with that guy. That is uh, our official Rippy Wright's foreign policy stance on the uh, crisis going on in Eastern Ukraine. We are an anti-Putin podcast. So uh, you can thank us for our service later. Let's see. Got a couple more to get to before we get out of here today. Kobe, Colby Joseph Wallace, bigger, which will be a bigger challenge in college athletics in five years, transfer portal or NIL? Um, challenge? I think the portal, if we're talking, well, it depends on who, who is it a challenge for? I think for coaches, it's probably the portal. I know you guys probably saw the news earlier in the week that Matt Luke stepped down as uh stepped away as Georgia's offensive line coach. And, you know, we've kind of been trained to think, Oh, coach stepped down. Like what's, what's the scuttlebutt? What, what happened? Like what, what led to this? And pretty became pretty evident pretty quickly that the guy's just burnt out and he wants to spend more time with his family. And with this transfer portal stuff, recruiting is literally year round. I know people used to talk about it being year round. Now there's literally no stopping it because you're having to recruit kids to one stay on your roster and you're having to recruit the transfer portal where there really are no rules in terms of how, uh, how and when you can recruit guys. Yes, you can't technically talk to guys on rosters, but let's be honest here. It happens all the time and they can transfer at any time or announce their intention to transfer at any time, even though they'll probably have to stay at school through whatever that semester is. So you get my point. It's, it's, it's challenging. I mean, it was already, already already hard enough to recruit high school kids, and that was a grind, right? That was kind of the the one downside to college a college coaching job versus the NFL. There's no true offseason because of recruiting. Well, now that's just exacerbated because you've added a whole nother pool that you have to recruit. And so that part of it's exhausting. So I think that will be a bigger challenge. But if you're talking about like administrators and challenge for the sport in general and competitive balance and all that I guess you can make an argument that it's NIL but I still don't think we know enough about NIL and the future of it and what it's actually going to become to really know how it's going to affect the balance of power in college football I think we're starting to see indications right the the Texas's and the Texas A&M's of the world with the large NIL pools and huge donor bases that even exceed the likes of an Alabama or an Auburn 
are going to benefit more, but does that directly correlate to wins and losses? Like, yes, in college football, generally, if you have better players, you're going to win the football game. I think that holds true in college football more so than it does any other sport in college athletics. But I kind of like believe it when I see it with Texas A&M and Jimbo, you know, like I need to see them get to the mountaintop and actually become that type of program first. So I think NIL could become an issue. I don't know how it's going to get regulated, if at all. Um, I don't know if there's going to be, well, there's going to be a market correction. I just don't know what that looks like. I just don't think they're going to keep giving kids six and seven figure deals uh, without the production and value that comes with the branding on the field, if that makes sense. So I think that could become an issue, but I'm going to go transfer portal because you're now seeing coaches flee the sport at a pretty high clip uh, just because they don't want to deal with it. And that to me from like the coach's standpoint is a bigger issue in retaining staff. I mean, not that Lane Kiffin lost a bunch of dudes to the pros, but like staff turnover, I think is going to be a huge thing. And you saw Ole Miss be the poster child of that, not because of guys, again, not wanting to continue in college athletics, but just how hard it is to manage staff turnover and continue to you know keep your program on an upward ascent. Um, and I think that's only going to continue with the whole NIL thing and coaches leaving the sport. So appreciate the question. I think that is all we had as far as mailbag Friday. Yes, that is all of our questions. I, did I miss anything? No, I think I got them all. There we go. That is Mailbag Friday. This has been another edition of the People's Holiday. I really appreciate you guys tuning in if you've made it to the end. Um, I appreciate the feedback on the story. Uh, I worked pretty hard on it. Uh, I'm certainly proud of it. And I thank you. Uh, thank you all for reading it and, um, and uh, for the joiners for sharing it. And also, one last thing. I don't really do this very often, but uh, I don't know if this guy even listens to the podcast, but someone who read it, Fred Warren, uh, reached out yesterday and mentioned uh, – that he enjoyed the story and that he's going into a battle with cancer himself and that, you know, it kind of taught him to appreciate and fight for every day. And that was really touching, man. I, I, I really appreciate you saying that. And so I just wanted to say uh, best of luck to you and I hope you kick cancer's ass. And uh, on behalf of this gigantic Rippy Wrights family, we are uh, certainly rooting for you. So shout out Fred Warren, go kick cancer's ass. I really appreciate you tuning in and thank you for uh, reaching out. That, uh, that meant a lot. Y'all have a wonderful weekend. Maybe it's already underway. Hope you got something cold in your hand or doing something you enjoy. And we will be back on Sunday.